Well, today on Making the Argument, we're going to ask the question, are you a threat to democracy or maybe democracy is a threat to you? That's right. Uh, for I think award for most controversial title we've picked so far goes to me. because uh, we wanted to sit down and actually have a robust discussion on the concept of democracy. The other thing that we wanted to do was we wanted to address this issue that a lot of conservatives actually, I, I think it's a mistake that a lot of conservatives make when they instantly respond to somebody that talks about our democracy and immediately goes into this whole idea of like, we're a Republic, not a democracy. Well, today We're actually going to talk about some of the nuances with this argument. Plus, this would just not be complete if we didn't also mention that, yes, Governor DeSantis has gotten into the race. So we're going to address that briefly, and then we are going to do a deep dive, deep dive into this whole concept of democracy being a potential threat to freedom or the thing that can save freedom. All of that and coming more on this episode of Making the Argument. Today, we are streaming on the Nick Freitas YouTube channel, the Making the Argument podcast YouTube channel, and Rumble. If you haven't already, go to the Making the Argument YouTube channel and subscribe. That would help us out a lot. If you want to search that, you can type in Making the Argument podcast, and if it's still not coming up, filter it by channel, and that should help you find it very quickly. Page isn't quite big enough uh, to be showing up in search results yet, but you can help us make that happen. Uh, If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description and join our community chat. We would appreciate that. We have a great time there, and Remember, if you want to ask a question in any of the three places that we're streaming, start your question off with question, colon, and then we'll see it that way. Thank you. All right. Well, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably okay guy. With us is my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And then, of course, our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. I am going to have so much fun in this episode. And that's only mildly terrifying. (laughs) And then we have Nicholas Hamilton, producer of producers, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. We're going to find out today what he thinks of democracy. How are you doing, Nick? Ah, doing great. This this thing about uh, DeSantis announcing yesterday is really interesting. I think on, you know, I don't think we generally see presidential candidates announcing in a medium like Twitter spaces. And at first I thought that's kind of interesting because I think about 5% of the population actually knows what Twitter spaces are. But if you think about it, there were about 1.3 million people in that group listening live. And I think that's probably the biggest audience for any presidential announcement in history. So real, real quick, and I guess you kind of already explained it, but I want you to dive a little bit deeper because everyone, everyone right now in social media and on podcasts and whatnot is talking about the whole potential matchup between, right. or, or now it is the matchup between Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott got in the race, and it was amazing to watch how Donald Trump responded to Tim Scott getting in the race versus Ron DeSantis. When it was Tim Scott, he's like, Tim's a great guy, and we've worked on stuff, and he's way better than Ron Sanctimonious. I mean, it was just very like nice and cordial. Um, and I think it's because Donald Trump doesn't consider Tim Scott to be his primary opponent. He considers Ron DeSantis to be his primary opponent. So all that's what a lot of the discussion has been. It's been the things that, that Donald Trump has now said about Ron uh, DeSantis, uh, Ron DeSantis's potential approach to it. We we actually did a whole episode on whether or not we thought it was a good idea for Ron DeSantis to actually jump in the race. But your big takeaway was the method. It So in the Twitter space last night, Elon talked about his response to COVID and that they followed the data and they made decisions based off of what the data was telling them. And I think that presidential candidates and campaigns in general are oftentimes slow to adapt to new mediums of communication through technology and social media. And so to see them look at the data and notice that their best means of communication is social 
is potentially Twitter, which is also interesting because Twitter was Trump's best platform for the longest time. Um, I think that it's a risk that they took. The platform shut down and crashed during the first stream. Um, and so Elon had to play a little catch up there and apologize. Uh, but Elon always fails, I think, pretty pretty beautifully most of the time. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I, I think what, what's going to be what I'm really concerned about with with this. And again, we're, we're going to get in democracy is what we're talking about today, not necessarily the presidential race. But um, two things that I find interesting. One is I'm going to find it really frustrating to watch Donald Trump and, and Ron DeSantis essentially try to eviscerate one another because I, I don't think we all know Trump's already trying to do it to DeSantis. I'm really curious to see how DeSantis responds um, my, my hope is, is that he, he won't try to just, you know, tear down Trump, but I don't, there's not a single pol political consultant that would tell him not to do right. that. Well, it's very frustrating to me because I feel like Ron DeSantis has so much to offer and is an excellent candidate if Donald Trump was not in the race, but instead he's going to end up going through the Trump meat grinder and his career will end here. And that's. To me, that's a sad thing because he's done some really, really great things. But the problem is, is I'm not sure he can win a primary against Trump, um, especially when you've got a lot of these people who, man, five minutes ago before he was a threat, mm -hmm. they loved Ron DeSantis. People did. And now they're like, well, I have some inside knowledge about some stuff that's going to come out and it's really bad and it'll turn your stomach when you find out about Ron DeSantis and who he really is. And I'm going, is this all this crazy whisper campaign stuff really going to work? And here's the problem is there's a giant swath of people that that works on. And it just disgusts me. I, I'll look at people who I really, until then, really respected and they'll sit there and they'll be like "Ooh, ron desantis you know, there's some things i could tell you that might really change your mind about him really are there and what you just did is change my mind about you so well so i mean when, when i when we discussed this before we kind of had three different opinions on this i think tina was a little bit more on the fence on whether or not desantis should run this time and, and I, I think all of us, so just for a little framework, all of us at the table like kind of acknowledge that both of them have pros and cons. Both Trump and DeSantis have pros and cons. And that's really what this, who this, what this race is going to be. Um, my position was, I don't think, I don't think the sort of Republican coalition needed to win is possible right now, simply because I think there are, there's a 25, 30% of the Republican base at a minimum that absolutely will insist on a, a Trump Biden rematch. Um, and, and they see anybody standing in the way as essentially a traitor. I don't see it that way. I, I don't see it that way. I understand why people would want to see that rematch, but I, I want to look at this more from the perspective of, you know, I, I uh, appreciate so much of what Trump did with policy wise, I appreciate so much what he was able to accomplish in certain areas. And then other areas, I have critiques of him. I don't think we should have printed $3 trillion. Um, I don't think he, he should have um, supported red flag laws. Uh, but on the should whole- Banned bump stocks. Yeah, but but on the but on the whole, but on the whole, like he, he was he was easily one of the most, you know, 
like actually practically getting conservative things done. Sure. He, he was, he was one of the best. There's no question. And I think that needs to be respected. Um, I also think that as far as Republican governors go, Ron DeSantis has a very good track record. And so I, I would love to see like a substantive policy debate between those two, but I, I, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. And I came to the conclusion that I think it would be better for DeSantis to sit this one out and run later. Now, Christian took the attitude previously that if Ron doesn't run now, this is it, and he's, he'll he's never get a chance. And and I, I still believe that, but I'm just, to be completely honest with you, I'm not emotionally invested in this race at all. And part of the reason is because of actually what we talked about last Thursday on our episode about a potential right-wing backlash. There's There was a phrase that What If Felt Hist used um, that I think Samuel Francis came up with when he wrote this book about the basically the political system in the West, and he, he referred to it as the Leviathan. Yeah. And I, I, I think that, you know, presidents come and go, Congresses come and go, but the Leviathan only swims to the left. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what does it, let's say, let's say DeSantis wins. Let's say that a Republican legislature gets elected, you know, House, Senate, all that stuff. And we also have a Republican Supreme Court or Republican appointed Supreme Court. Do we honestly believe that in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that this country will be to the right of where it currently is, or do we think it'll be to the left of where it currently is? I would postulate that it would be to the left, and I have reason to believe that. Go back to where the United States was in 1979, not 1980, 1979, and ask yourself, is this country currently to the left or right of where it was in 1979? The reason I say 1979 and not 1980 is because something very important supposedly happened in 1980. We had this guy named Ronald Reagan who got elected to the White House, despite the fact that he was labeled some right-wing extremist nutjob by the media. And he wanted a landslide. It was considered a realignment election. It, it, was, it was supposed to be this, this conservative Republican resurgence. And yet look at where this country is today versus where it was the year before he got into office, before he could do anything. It is fundamentally, in every single respect, to the left, every single one, economically, socially, culturally, politically, our financial conditions worse. Certainly, you know, we're basically in clown world right now. Like, like <laughs> no matter what way you look at it, this country is to the left of where it was before Reagan even came along. And that didn't work. What about 1993, the year before I was born? Are we more to the left or right of, of that? We're absolutely to the left. And yet that was before the Republican Revolution in 1994. Well, I think it's uh, so here's Hang on. I've got two more. How about how about the 2010 Tea Party wave? Are we more to the right or left than we were in 2009? I would absolutely argue we are to the left of where we were in 2009. And yet that is despite the fact that Republicans picked up 60 something seats in the House and almost flipped the Senate. It was one of the largest, you know, Republican. Yeah. Realignment congressional elections in American history. And yet we are to the left of where we were before the Tea Party wave. This is during the Obama administration in 2009. And then here's your last one. Donald Trump's own presidency. Are we to the left or right as a country versus where we were in 2015? I remember 2015. It was not that long ago. I was turning 21. I was about to graduate uh, from, from college. You had just announced that you were running for, that was your first year getting elected to the state legislature. And I remember in January that year, you got up when you first threw your hat in the ring and made yourself a candidate. And you said, we're going to draw a line in the sand 
and we're going to tell the left, you are not going to cross this line no further. You certainly upheld your end of that bargain. <laughs> but I look around, I look at my state, I look at my country. There is no way that that, that anybody can, can, can rationally argue that we are to the right or that we are even in the same place of where we were in 2015. We are fundamentally to the left of that. Every single year, we keep moving further and further left. That's why I said the Leviathan only swims to the left. Mm-hmm. And I, this, the same thing will happen in four years, right? Let's say DeSantis gets elected. Let's say Republican Congress gets elected in 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 twenty twenty four. Ten years from now, this country will be to the left of it until until finally the whole entire thing falls apart. Well, here, here's here's what I would say. So I mean, look, I, I think the the logic of what you're saying is is fairly unassailable. Somebody said we're not thinking critically. Like, okay, <laughs> I, I think that was a pretty. Pretty, that wasn't thinking critically. I, I think I think that was uh, <laughs> that, I think critical thinking was applied to that that reasoning. I, I think here's what this comes down to. Um, when we when we talk about democracy, because th- we're going to segue into this this conversation right now, and we and we see this emphasis pr- predominantly from the left talking about our democracy and saving our democracy and advancing our democracy and the people that represent a threat to the democracy. And, and this has been something that I would say since the early progressive era has been something that the left has primarily focused on is the idea of democracy. And then the, the popular conservative response to that is we're not a democracy, we're a republic. But then there, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of explanation past that in, in many of these exchanges. So what we're gonna the first thing I want to talk about here is, is I want to talk about why I think so many people on the left think that this is ridiculous, that really what we're saying when we – when we, when we make a distinction between democracy and republic is that we're just um, anti-democratic processes or we don't want people to be able to vote or we want to go back to the good old days where it was only, you know, white property owners. Like, and that's all ridiculous. But here's the, other, here's the other problem is that when you look at dictionary.com or the Oxford Dictionary says that democracy, this is how Oxford Dictionary describes democracy as a system of government by the whole population or all the eligible members of a state typically through elected representatives. That's actually a fairly accurate description of how we elect people in the United States. Here's dictionary.com. Government by the people, a form of government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised directly by them or by their elected agents under a free electoral system. That's also a fairly good, that, that describes aspects of our democracy as well. But here's how Madison described it in Federalist Number 10. He said, from the view of the subject, it may be concluded that a pure democracy, by which I mean a society consisting of a small number of citizens who assemble and administer the government in person. Now, when you look at that, anthropologists and historians have said, well, nobody other than like small, very small tribal communities, nobody's ever operated in accordance with the sort of democracy that Madison just described. So is it really a useful description? But let's go on to see how Madison describes a republic. And this was in Federalist 39. We may define a republic to be, or at least may bestow that name on, a government which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people and is administered by persons holding their offices during pleasure for a limited period or during good behavior. It is essential to such government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or a favored class of it. 
Otherwise, a handful of tyrannical nobles exercising their oppressions by a delegation of their powers might aspire to the rank of Republicans and claim for their government the honorable title of Republic. It is sufficient for such a government that persons administer it be appointed either directly or indirectly by the people and that they hold their appointments by either of their tenures just specified. So basically he, he's, he's providing a description of what a republic is, is essentially representative government. The, the large body of the people have a say in electing directly or indirectly. So you can look at electoral college as a form of like indirect election people that will then go and represent them for a specified period of time, right? That, that was one of the important components that, that, um, Madison was including here when he talked about a republic. It's not like we do one election and, oh, well, we elected the king and he's there forever now. Like that's, that's not what he wanted. He, he wanted turnover or at least the ability for turnover to take place. Now, here's what I will say. When you look at the common definitions of democracy used today, they do in large part describe our electoral process. When you look at Madison's description of a republic, or, or the bare minimum of, of what a republic represents, that also describes kind of our, our overall system. Here's where I think the major breakdown is, like the, the actual substantive part of this. I think there is a reason why the left emphasizes democracy and the right emphasizes republic, and I don't think it's purely semantics. Could I take a guess on Go why? Ahead. I think the left focuses on democracy because anytime they can make it a collective mission where they're bringing everyone on board. This is everyone's mission and then place themselves in the position to be the fighters on their behalf. They have a much more loyal base. I, I think that's a practical consideration, but I actually think there's a deeper philosophical okay. one. So if you, if you look at um, conservatism within the American tradition, so I'm not talking about like right-wing parties in Europe and stuff like that. If you, if you look at kind of the, the conservative movement, there is a general commitment Generally, you know, generally speaking, there is a commitment to certain things like objective truth, objective reality, objective morality, right? So that's why you see people on the right emphasizing God-given rights, not just arbitrary rights within society. So God-given rights, things like you should freedom of speech, the right to be able to defend yourself, um, and then there's other rights that we recognize as part of the. Um, um, relationship between government and the people, which is to say that if the government wants to take something from me, be it my liberty, be it my property, be my life, there has to be due process involved with that because the moral assumption is that you as a human being, provided you're not hurting other people, are free to live your life the way you want. And that if the government is now going to interfere with you living your life, there has to be a legitimate reason and you get some say in the process and there's rules the government has to follow before they can execute their power and authority against you, right? These, these are the concepts that are very, very, tend to be very, very important and talked about and discussed in detail. So why the emphasis on a republic? Well, if you look at our institutions, the same people on the left that are saying our democracy also have major problems with the Electoral College. Also have major problems with things like the United States Senate. Also have, in many cases, major problems with constitutional limitations on federal power. Now, what gives them the ability to simultaneously say, protect our democracy, and yet have some sort of baseline you know, antithesis 
to elements within that system that are core to our specific form of government. And as long as we're being specific here, what we actually live in is a constitutional republic that utilizes democratic processes for the selection of legislators and the executive, and that also requires those legislators to do to engage in a democratic process for the selection of what laws will be drafted and then signed into law. That's what we have. So democracy doesn't do a, a good job of completely explaining it. The Republic is a little bit more accurate, but what I, what I would argue that the main focus of the debate here is that conservatives tend to see that there are, that there are not only, um, there should be natural limitations on government power and what it can do, regardless of what the majority likes, and that in order to, to limit government power, you have to have elements within the government where you have competing powers between the states, between the popular majorities. This is why the House is elected by popular majority. This is why the Senate used to be selected by the state legislatures because the Senate was supposed to be representative of the states as a whole, individual states, as opposed to just the body politic in general. This is a reason why we have three different branches of government. This is a reason why the president doesn't write legislation. They sign it or they veto it and then they carry it out. All of this was put in place very carefully to make sure we did not live in a country with bare majority rules. And I think the concern a lot of us have on the right is not so much with the conflating of democracy or republic necessarily on the semantic side. It's the, what do you actually mean by that? Because I think a lot of people on the left, when they talk about, oh, you know, our democracy, what they really mean is majoritarianism. And that's what I think conservatives have a concern with. I've got some quotes from uh, some of our founding fathers that I, I'd like to read off. And I want your take on this, Nick. Um, here's one from Thomas Jefferson. A democracy is nothing more than mob rule, where 51% of the people may take away the rights of the other 49%. Here's one from John Adams. Democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. And then uh, James Madison. Democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have, in general, been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their death. And then finally, Alexander Hamilton, who we all hate, but <laughs> nonetheless... I don't hate him. He, he, he did. He was terrible he on central Hamilton, banking. He Hamilton, though. <laughs> he was terrible on central banking, but there were a few positive contributions to, to his, his role in the founding of this country. And Hamilton says... Um, not not our Hamilton here. The yeah. Hamilton that did like central banking. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm the good he Hamilton. Said, <laughs> thank you. He says, uh, we are a Republican government. Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. It has been observed that a pure democracy, if there um uh, that a pure democracy, if it were practical, would be the most perfect government. Experience has proved that no position is more false than this. The ancient democracies in which the people found themselves deliberated never possessed one good feature of government. Their very character was tyranny. So it seems as if, and if you read um, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, uh, like Elbridge Gerry, some other founding fathers that are not less you know, that, that, that are less well-known, but yeah. still played a tremendous role in yeah. the creation of our country, Elbridge Jerry being one of them. I mean, he was would not at all be described as a fan of democracy. He, he equated democracy as, as not being synonymous with freedom at all, like the left currently portrays well, but see, it as, the, but, the, but being at direct odds with it. But the left would look at that and essentially say, well, of course, 
they didn't want democracy. They were a bunch of rich, white landowners and sometimes slave owners. Of course, they wanted a system that was, you know, um, more, you know, categorized as a republic, but in reality was nothing more than an oligarchy, right? That's, that's the left's rendition of that because after all, they didn't let women vote and they didn't, you know, slaves weren't allowed to vote and we had the three-fifths compromise. What, what is the difference between mob rule by a few and, and or, or sorry, what is the difference between authoritarian rule by a few and authoritarian rule by the many? Well, Generally, it's the amount of people participating in the authoritarianism. <laughs> but if they both lead to the same end state, no, 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 I, I get that. But the, one, is one more morally culpable no, 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 or no. superior I, no, than I'm the not, other? I'm not saying that the left's argument is accurate. No, I know that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm saying I'm saying that the left's argument is when when we say, "Oh, look, this is what the founding fathers said." That used to carry a lot of weight with the population in general. Now we have an entire generation of students that have gone through public school, and what they know about George Washington was white slave owner that didn't want to pay his taxes, which is, by the way, the price we pay for civilization, right? That's what they know about him. So mentioning the founding fathers has a great deal of relevance for me because I, I've, I've bothered to actually understand what they were trying to do and why, and why they were trying to do it within the context of the times they were operating. What, I, what I'm talking about here is, is that when a kid picks up their dictionary right, right now, today, and they hear that it is a form of government with the supreme powers vested in the people and exercised directly by them or by their elected agents under a free electoral system, that seems like a pretty good definition of what we have to some degree. It's incomplete, very incomplete. But they, they look at that and like, what's the problem with that? And so we we have to do a better job of explaining that the reason why our founders were, were saw problems with democracy. And really, I think you could replace the word democracy with majoritarianism. Sure. I was about to argue. I, I do not think that we have a democracy. We have a cacistocracy. We have a rule by the least qualified worst people <laughs> in society that's what he thinks of you babe that, right. no no, no, no. <laughs> like, like like the definition i've got the definition of cacistocracy right here it says is um cacistocracy is a government run by the worst least qualified and most unscrupulous citizens <laughs> the word was coined as early as the 17th century that I, is I, what I, we have that's exactly what we have <laughs> nick have you ever heard I think this is hyperbolic. Okay, let, let's take it the founding is, fathers out of it. I think there's definitely some truth to that. But but let's take the founding fathers out of it for a second. You you watched my podcast back when I actually had my my yeah. podcast, right? Yeah. And and you briefly, uh, I, I I didn't get to finish it. I will at some point. You need to finish. I that. would hope so. But there was um there was an episode that I put out about the the Greek revolt in Athens after yeah. Alexander's death. The, the, the 10 second backstory is the podcast was about the wars of the Diadochi after Alexander's death. And one of the elements of that Alexander's, was Alexander dies in Babylon and all of his generals are essentially fighting over the empire that, that yes. he created. Now, how does, what does this have to do with democracy, right? This is authoritarian, you know, absolute monarchy. Well, in, in Greece, they, they were democracies at the time, all the Greek city states, Athens being the most famous of them. Athens had been subjugated by Macedon and then tried to revolt against Macedon once Alexander was dead. There was a guy in Macedon. At the time, one of the most famous people in the world, in the ancient world, one of the most famous people who ever lived, but he's largely forgotten today, and his name is Phocion. Phocion's life is, is I think, a testament to just how damaging democracy can be and how democracies do absolutely can, can result in, in suicide. I would argue almost 100% suicide rate. Phocion was a very famous Greek orator, but he wasn't a demagogue. Um, he was actually a very wise man and he lived to be, I think, 84 when they finally killed him. I kind of might, I, I might've just spoiled the, the story there, but Phocion was, was a very cautious person. 
and and he he was an Athenian patriot, but he also realized that the general public a lot will push for policies that will ultimately hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. And and not just hurt themselves, hurt me and my family too. And so he got into politics because he wanted to to protect his own individual liberty and his family's liberty from the mob doing something against them, sometimes not even realizing it. And um, when Philip died, Alexander's father, Philip II, when he died, when he was assassinated, Athens clamored for war with Macedon in order to basically reclaim their status as the preeminent Greek power. And Phocion warned them, no, this this Alexander kid is probably going to wipe the floor with you. And yet the people voted for war. Yeah. Athens marched out on the field. Alexander just demolished them. Yeah, destroyed them. And then completely burned Thebes to the ground, which was Athens' ally. And then he was moving on Athens itself. And the people panicked because they thought, oh my gosh, he, Alexander's going to do to Athens what they did, you know, what, what he did to Thebes. Please do something. <laughs> Phocion's response was, if I had been listened to the first time, we would not need to be discussing such things. <laughs> so he went to Alexander, basically conceded a bunch of points, surrendered but managed to preserve Athenians local government system they they you know they didn't have rule over Greece but they managed to retain their political independence and they had to join the Hellenic League and, and support Alexander when he invaded Persia so then guess what happens Alexander conquers Persia and then 12 years later he dies and so what does Athens do again we need to go to war again yeah. and Phocion his remark when um Alexander died was the the army that Dick crushed us, has lost but one man. Yeah. <laughs> and and then nonetheless, he gets outvoted again. Yeah. And then they march off to war. <laughs> and he and, and guess what? They lose again. Yeah. And then the people come back and say, please save us. Please save us. We're gonna get wiped out like thieves. And then Phocion's like, You you people will not learn, will you? Yeah. And he goes and negotiates a peace, and this time the peace involves them losing their democracy. Yeah. And when people in school learn about Athens and democracy, they never really tell you the the how it ends, right? They they like when you're in, in, in school, you learn about, you know, Greece and Rome and stuff like that, and how Athens was one of the first democracies, but you're never told how the story ends. The story ends with the Athenians destroying their own democratic system because they decide to push for policies that led to the destruction of Athens. And they their city was saved unlike Thebes, but their political system was not. Yeah. And Athens was completely subsumed into the Macedonian Empire and remained a part of it until the Romans showed up and then it was part of the Roman Empire. That is the end of the story of Athenian democracy, is them committing suicide mm-hmm. against the wishes of somebody like Phocion. And Phocion got up and he said, I will not allow my people to destroy themselves even if they wish it. Yeah. But you know what? He was just one man and he was outvoted. Well, here, and then eventually, I'll end the story with this, eventually they killed him because he collaborated with the very people that he worked with to preserve the city from being destroyed, the Macedonians. And then they viewed him as a traitor for the fact that they went to him and asked for help to spare them. And he did exactly what they wanted twice, despite the fact that he voted against the war both times. And then they blamed him for it and then murdered him because of it. And, and, Phocion's story is a tragedy, but I think the reason that it's worth bringing it up in this in this podcast is because that is the direction that I see d- democracies going. What the audience will realize if they're watching on YouTube or if they're in the car driving is that I and this table probably have the most critical view of democracy because I think that it is completely incompatible with freedom. And okay, so so wait, no, well, no, no, no. Let's let's all right. Let's kind of segue into that because I, I think that. I, I actually, the, the way I describe it is democratic processes um, 
maybe, and I believe inherently are, um, for practical reasons, democratic processes are necessary in a free society. They are not sufficient to create a free society. Part of the problem with I, that, I, again, I have with the way the, the, so many on the left tend to talk about democracy is they almost seem like it's, it's universally interchangeable with freedom or liberty, and it's not. And I think actually, and, and I used to think that this is just um, lazy, right? This is just lazy language, and, it, and it's easy. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson, who was, again, not a fan of liberty and a, and a progressive, um, but, it, but it's this whole idea that now I'm convinced that, no, it's, they're actually laying groundwork for a moral justification for, for what, a lot of they, uh, what a lot of them want to do with, through their policies. And the, and the thing is, is democracy has become their moral justification for using force against their opposition. Now, I, I don't mean force in the form of going out and burning down buildings or you know executing people. Or putting, I don't mean that. But I, I will watch... I will watch as a Democrat will say, you should be free to live your life the way you want. And the government there is to be a force for good. And, and you should, and then, okay, well, what do you want to do with this government power that you're now seeking? Oh, I want the government to control healthcare. I want it to control education. I want it to direct what transportation looks like. I want to make sure that we're actually cracking down on the forms of energy I don't like and, and advancing the forms of energy I do like. I want these companies to be successful. I want these companies to be punished. I'm looking at all this going, five seconds ago, you said that people should be free and living without constant interference because of what other people believed. But now you're advocating for a system of government and for you to have power within that system of government in order to interfere in very forcible ways in every aspect of somebody's life. And I'm, and I'm sitting here looking like, do you not see the contradiction? So, so where, where is the moral justification for doing what you just described, which seems to completely contradict what you said five seconds ago? Democracy. A majority wants it. And if a majority wants it, then it's perfectly acceptable. Now, they will sit there and be intellectually honest enough to admit that, oh, yeah, you know, slavery was bad and there was bad things that happened under democracies. But ultimately, where do they go? Where do they go in order to find moral justification for what it is that they're attempting to do other than majoritarianism? And so I, I'm, I am less convinced anymore that this is just sloppy use of language. And I'm more convinced that, that a word is being utilized to lay a moral framework to do things, which I think are in direct opposition to achieving genuine freedom and individual liberty, not because democratic processes are bad, but because democratic processes are limited with respect to what they can actually achieve and what their purpose is. So they need to be joined with something else in order to create some kind of a hybrid system, which is where the left gets democratic socialism. <laughs> I mean, I would, I, I would say that like, you know, when, when, when you argued that, um, you know, uh, uh, d democratic processes are are necessary but not sufficient for a free society. Like, there's another quote from F. A. Hayek, and he says, "The magic word democracy has become so all powerful that all the inherited limitations on government power are breaking down before it. It is unlimited democracy, not just democracy, which is the problem today." Wh and, who and said this? F. A. Hayek. Oh wow! And. I, 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 I just, I see so much truth in that. Like, like, for example, we would not say that Singapore is, is a authoritarian hellscape. It's authoritarian, mm -hmm. but it is not a hellscape. People have almost maximum individual and economic freedom, 
but it is not a, a, a fully politically free society. And that's not me saying, it's, it's and this is why we need to, yeah. this, is, this is not why I'm saying, and this is why we need to go back to the policies of 1980s China, yeah. where they're like <laughs> liberalizing, but still the CCP has absolute power. I'm not yeah. advocating for that. But I, I do think that, that something more similar to the Singaporean system is the ideal system where you have maximum freedom and liberty. Maybe it's a testament to how difficult it is to get such a system that there's only one such state in the entire world that has it, Singapore being the case, because China is not a free society at all. They're, they don't have political freedom and they don't have economic freedom and they don't have personal freedom. There's, there's a lot of things about Singapore that would drive libertarians absolutely nuts. Oh, they're very um, tough on crime. Yeah, and, and but by the and and they do. They are essentially a one-party state. They still have a, a great deal of. They still have a great deal of. Um, I wouldn't only say economic freedom, but also social freedom. And there is participation in the electoral process. It's just that one party is essentially so dominant um, that that there's there's really no opposition. And, and they have a million mechanisms in order to ensure their 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 yeah, dominance. Yeah, they do. They, they basically do. can game the system. But and and there's also a lot of restrictions and the way in, in which and who can vote in Singapore too. And so it's it's not it's not like a full majoritarian democracy like the direction that we're going in many respects. I mean, you have Democrats that are, are arguing to allow 16-year-olds to vote right yeah. now. Um, they would love 16-year-olds to be able to vote. Well, but I, I, my point is, is that in Singapore, they have a, I would absolutely argue, Singapore has a freer economy than we do. Oh, no, it does. There's no question. If you, if you look at, there's a couple different groups that do really good freedom indexes. Heritage Foundation has an economic freedom index. Cato has one. There's another organization that does one. It, might, it actually might be in conjunction with Cato. And Singapore, it used to be Hong Kong was, was almost always number one. But and Singapore is like almost it. always in the top like four. In Singapore, they would never allow Antifa or BLM or any of these left wing groups to trash your business in your oh, home. No, they would <laughs> never allow that. They will. They. I mean, there there was a story. I remember growing up in high school, and there was a story about an American student that was over in Singapore, and I think he did something like spit on the street, which was illegal. Um, and then he started to be kind of a smart aleck with the cops. He got caned. What that means. <laughs> Is they take bamboo, they beat him and beat you with it. <laughs> like this wasn't like, here's your twenty five dollar ticket, sir. Please don't spit on the street. This was, yeah, we don't play that here. And 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 again, I'm not, I'm not saying that's I'm not saying that's necessarily like good. But it the point was is that they there's there's a certain emphasis on social cohesion in in Singapore um, that that they put a great deal of emphasis on. And that's not just, and, and that's the idea. People have this idea that it's this authoritarian structure that's got everyone scared. No, they actually have a culture that really uplifts and, you know, overall uplifts and supports this sort of thing to where there's an incredible amount of social pressure to not do these things before it ever gets to the legal yes. pressure. No, I mean, the reason that Singapore's government is what it is, the people haven't oh, graffiti. I'm sorry, Robert, Robert Scores said it was graffiti. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. I, I know it's illegal to spit the, on the streets people, or like spit your um, gum or something like that. The, the, the people in Singapore like the way that their system works. It hasn't been like forced on. It's not tyranny. That, 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 that That's what people don't realize. Like so many people, I feel like, have been taught that the opposite of democracy is tyranny. And I disagree with that. I think democracy leads to tyranny. And that's what the founding fathers recognized. If you read their writings, they say it over and over and over again. We, the left has, I think, conditioned even conservatives in this country into believing that democracy and freedom are synonymous yeah. and that democracy belongs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the very pinnacle alongside self-actualization. 
That is not where democracy is. Democracy is not synonymous with freedom. It is at odds with freedom. Democracy is not self-actualization. Voting is not self-actualization. A vote is a weapon that you can wield against another person. And the reason that we don't give that weapon to, say, five-year-olds and foreigners is because we've made the decision that the cost-benefit analysis of letting Xi Jinping vote in American elections is not a good one. That does not mean that every single five-year-old, though, is an evil person. Mm -hmm. That also doesn't mean that every foreigner, every single person in France or Sweden is an evil person. No, it just means that we have decided that it would not be wise for us to give the ability for people in other countries or for five-year-olds, for example, the ability to, to wield the power that comes with voting to inflict damage on our society. Well, okay, I, I, so I think this is, this is an interesting point is when you describe the vote as a weapon which can be wielded against other people within society. I think that's that's accurate. I don't think there's any way you can get around the logical consistency of that. If I'm able to vote for somebody that I know is going to implement policies which hurt another person, that that's, I, I mean, again, that's, the government's the entity that has the ability to use, legally use aggressive force, right? We all have the, we all have the, the inherent right to be able to use force to defend ourselves, but we don't get to use force to go down to the 7-Eleven and get gas. Right, we can we can pay for it. We can involve in ourselves in a voluntary transaction. We don't get for the government gets to use force. So there's there's no question. And it's interesting when you when Christian says that that um, democracy is a threat to freedom. I, I let me expand on something. Every system of government is a threat to freedom. Is a potential threat to freedom. So the question would be is if, if freedom is something that we want to foster. Why have any system of government? And this is where you're like anarcho-capitalist well, or, or your Even, uh, you know, absolute freedom, where there is no system of government, can be a threat to the freedom to certain and, people. And this is so at, at some point, you do need some kind of bone structure. Well, this, this gets into what I think is a very interesting argument. Right. And, and there, there's, there's areas like when we talk about like the non-aggression principle, which is kind of rooted in, in libertarian thought, like it's kind of the foundation and non-aggression principle is very simple. As long as I'm not using aggression to achieve my ends, I should be allowed to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, the more conservative approach to that is to say that there are certain things that you do that have such societal ills that we're so aware of the societal ills that there should be limitations on even what you can do to yourself. Right. And, and that's an, and that's an interesting philosophical debate. But the, but the overall point here is, is that anthropology and history is demonstrated or, or is, is demonstrated to most people sufficiently that authoritarian instructions of government are, are bad and yield poor results. And that anarchy, in most cases, is completely unsustainable and, and leads to bad results. And so the question that our founders were, were, were trying to tackle here was how do you maximize an individual liberty in, in a way that is, it is meaningful. And one of the conclusions that they came to is that you have to have maximized economic liberty. This, this is something Christian touched on this a second ago. This is something that I don't think the left acknowledges. And that is political liberty without economic liberty drives more and more toward absolute meaningless in both categories. Because if I'm free to vote, but the only thing that I'm really voting for is the people that are going to control all of the resources that I am in this never-ending game of looking at everybody else within society outside of my group as a threat to me because what we're really deciding 
is, is not who's going to protect our individual liberties and rights to go out and engage socially and economically. What we're really fighting for is who's going to control the resources and who will be the beneficiaries of that control. And so you look at a case like that where that's where we get into the tyranny of the majority. If 50% plus one of the population can morally justify through democratic processes the, the stealing, the harming, the hurting, the murdering, the killing, the imprisoning of 50% minus one of the population, right. you have not created a moral system simply because you got a majority to agree with you. It's and, mob rule at that and, point. Well, and, and even though the left will come out and ostensibly say, yes, we acknowledge that, we agree with that, well, then here's my question. Why do you keep putting so much emphasis on not just democracy, but really what you really mean is majoritarianism? You don't mean democracy in the sense that that even maybe you know, a, a Madisonian or a Jeffersonian would have meant it, which is to say that we have strict limitations on government. But yes, the body politic gets to participate in the election of elected representatives who have term limits, right? Or, or, I think that the, the founding fathers knew it was problematic, which is why we have the Constitution, which is why they set up, you know, a system of checks and balances. And, and, and not just that, but like put in some explicitly anti-democratic processes like the Electoral College and the Senate. I love when when the Democratic Party's politicians go out there and they're like, the Senate is anti-democratic. The Electoral College is anti-democratic. Yes. Yeah. That, they, well, <laughs> but, but see, that's, that's my point, right? It's, it's this idea that if it's democratic, it's good. Yes, that's, that's, that's the, the problem. problem that I have with yeah. what they're saying. But, they, no, but they had to put in safeguards to protect the minority from the majority. Yes. And if we don't have those safeguards, like the Electoral College... And like how, well, the Senate was supposed to originally be. And, yeah. and right now there is somewhat of a safeguard as well because every state gets two senators no matter what their population is, which they hate. Oh, yeah. And so, but that is what protects these smaller places with a, a minority. It, that's what protects them from the will of the majority. And to this idea that the majority should be able to vote willy-nilly for whatever, you know, they want to inflict on the minority is it's, it's absolutely insane, but I feel like that is really what they want. I just a few minutes ago had a mind blown, you know, experience because I've always thought about economic liberty and free markets, but I've never, I, I think what you said a few minutes ago was really important. If any, anybody missed it about economic liberty being a requirement to protect liberty as a whole, you need to back up and listen to that again, because it was really interesting because I've, I've, Obviously, always been a supporter of free markets, really important. But the idea that economic liberty is a requirement to maximize freedom across the board because the when politicians control economics, they are controlling resources. Yes. That's that's really interesting. This is the this is the part that and, and and it's fascinating because people on the left will look at Singapore and they they have a lot of problems with it because they see a, a deficiency within the political freedom and and I can understand that and I I'm sympathetic to that argument. Here's the problem that I do have: <laughs> freedom to do what? Right, freedom to do what? That's my big question for the left: freedom to do what? What what are you giving me the freedom to do? Oh, you have the freedom to vote. Oh, cool. So right. I, I, get, I get to choose which one of you gets to control my life. Well, that sounds like a free country. Oh, they also want freedom from want. Well, and okay, and see, that's the other part where I, I think that- Yeah, my freedom to pillage your belongings. Yes, I think they, they manipulate, and this is, this is, again, the one reason why I'm also skeptical of the way they use the term democracy is because of the way they use freedom and the way they use the term rights. 
right? I I was just yeah. I was just reading the Democrats' page there. Healthcare is a human right. What does that mean? If, if it's a human right, then what you're saying is, is that anything that can fall within the category of healthcare, I have an inherent right to, which means since healthcare doesn't fall from the sky, healthcare is a product or a service or a combination of the use of products products in order to deliver services. Products and services don't typically fall out of the sky. It isn't manna from heaven. People have to go to school to become nurses, to become doctors. People have to invent things in order to, to sell, like to build an MRI machine. All of those things have costs associated with it. But the moment you say, I have an inherent right to it, what you're really saying is, is that I should have access to it regardless of my ability to pay or compensate somebody else that is engaged in their labor in order to, to buy property and then in order to be able to use it for a particular purpose. So when you say I have a right to healthcare, what you're really saying is I have the right to enslave other people to my needs. We fought a war with this. And by the way, the Democrats were wrong that time too. So this is my problem. It's like you're, you're misusing the term right and you're misusing the term freedom because when you say you have a right to be free from want. I, I, had, a, I had a delegate that, that I, I, on a personal level, I like. I like. Sometimes that's a weird and thing she, and she, to yeah. like somebody on a personal level, but then you completely don't respect oh my their intellect well, well, at she, all. She came, she came to me and she had a rule for the House of Delegates. She had a rule for the House of Delegates. The rule change was going to be you couldn't have a concealed carry uh, or you couldn't have a, a, a firearm if you were sitting in the gallery. Because uh, up until very recently in Virginia. <laughs> I remember this story. Oh my up God. until very recently in Virginia, if, if you were legally permitted to carry, you could carry in the Capitol. Yeah. And the Democrats got in power and changed all of that. But she had a rule change when we were still running things at the time. Right, we're you know back in charge of the house now, but running things. And she goes, Nick, I have a bill. I have a rule change. I think you're going to like. It, it makes it illegal. You're no longer permitted. Not illegal. You're no longer permitted to have a, a firearm in the gallery. Why, Why would, would she, she think, think that you, you would like you that? of all people? Here's would what like it, that. I'll tell you what her reasoning was. And I said, I said, I don't think I'm going to be voting for that rules change. And she goes, Nick, you were a green beret. You know the danger of having the enemy on the armed and on the high ground behind you. And I said, I guess the difference here is I don't see my constituents as my enemies. And she goes, I didn't mean that. I said, well, that's the example that you utilize. She's like, so you're telling me your right to keep and bear arms should supersede my right to feel safe. And I said, okay, so you believe that there's such a thing as a universal right to feel safe. Yes. So then presumably I have a universal right to feel safe. Absolutely. Okay, great. I only feel safe if they all got guns. So now how does the government adjudicate? Because now we're in a situation where it's not your policy position versus my policy position. You've said that there's a universal right to feel safe. So now the government has to infringe on one of our rights because you and I have two very different views of what feeling safe is. This is why we don't base our rights on our feelings. This is why you can't base your rights on on some like uh, on feelings and you can't base your rights on products and services. Yeah, you don't get positive rights. And and I and I don't get this. I'm sitting here looking at this going if you if you believe in positive rights, which is to say you have a right to healthcare. No. You have a right to go seek out healthcare. If you have a you positive have a, right, that basically means you have the right to the labor and goods of other people, which basically means you have the right to enslave them. Yeah. Well, so you there, cannot have positive rights. And their rights. argument is, well, we're not enslaving them. We're just using tax dollars in order to like, all right, guys, think about this for a second. Yeah. You know what? 
that's exactly how they figured out a loophole with apprenticeship, too, when they got rid of slavery. You know what? Democrats have a bad track record with freedom. I'm just saying. I, I like... I'm I'm surprised that that this uh, this delegate didn't resort to the the typical thing that people on the left do, which is oh well, you see your opinion is just morally worth less because of your race or skin color or gender or whatever. You're a straight white male. Your opinion doesn't matter as much. Like I I, I do think that the identity politics component cannot be separated from the debate over democracy. Okay, go ahead and elaborate Here's, on that. All right. You are everybody here is free to interrupt me whenever they want because this might actually take like fifteen minutes to get through the story. So well, stop whenever you want. Bef- are, are there any questions we on. can take? Okay. There is one question because it yeah, yeah. pertains Wait, to let, what we just talked that, about, then. and then can we get to that? Yep. Um, and I think we might have already answered it. Nick okay. O said question. Nicole O. Uh, Nicole, sorry. Um, what about health? Uh, health as a human right versus health care. Our current healthcare system doesn't have access to holistic natural care, and most people don't believe in natural medicines. So, what Nicole, that that's a that's a really good question, and and this is something that this is interesting because I have some people that might fall into the category of like traditional conservatives that have actually disagreed with me on some of my votes in the general assembly, where I've I've every time I have the ability to expand um, the freedom for people to choose mechanisms for their healthcare, I take it. Um, and people are like, well, that's, that's junk science or that's this. I'm like, uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know, but I'm not telling them that they can't utilize this particular product or they can't use a lot. They can't do, you know, home births or have access to, you know, what, what is it? Uh, uh, medulas? Well, and, and, medulas and, and, or, anyway, the, yeah, no, it's like I would medulas. know. <laughs> what is it? What is it's, it called? It's doulas. Doulas. All right. Sorry. I, I don't. <laughs> I've never needed one. <laughs> the the point, but the point is, is like, yeah, you should have a right. And here's the crazy part: the same people that are saying you have a right to healthcare also want to decide what healthcare looks like and what you can have access to. Whereas, and, and let me give you a perfect example of this. I brought up this example before. I'm, I'm this year. I might actually just carry legislation to try to get at this some way because I actually want to build it'll work, not just a messaging bill. But I said, let me get this straight. A Special Forces 18 Delta, Special Forces medic, one of the most highly trained medics in the military, can go overseas, can provide you stitches, can provide geriatric care, can deliver your baby, can hand out medication, and oh, by the way, can fix a sucking chest wound under fire while calling in a nine-line medevac and save your life as long as they're overseas. But the moment they touch ground in the United States, if they try to provide you medical care for money, they can go to jail for it. That's ridiculous. But every time we try to expand scope of practice or maybe reduce some of the licensure requirements or, or at the very least say, let's come up with a different form of licensure that has less requirements to perform these medical services. You will get a litany of people within the medical community arguing to keep that in place because it creates barrier to entry in the marketplace. And the justification they will always use is we're trying to protect the public from these snake oil salesmen and these people that are trying to, to fool them. I, I get it. That's going, that is going to happen. The more freedom you have within the marketplace, but what also happens within the marketplace is you have more information. You have free to choose the, the things that work best for you. And Oh, by the way, the established medical community doesn't always get it Right. So why should you be a lobbying to prevent me from getting access to healthcare that I think is appropriate for me or my needs? 
So, like, to your point, no, I, I think we need to expand your right to seek out health care. That's the real version of health care freedom. But that doesn't, that also, in, in when we talk about health insurance, that also doesn't mean that we are going to put a bunch of regulations, <clears throat> excuse me, regulations on health insurers to force them to provide certain things. Um, Nick. Yeah, no, no, that's that's the point. The, you're right. I think you're right to seek health care. This is so the, like the healthcare should be, you should be able to seek the healthcare, but that doesn't yes. mean that the insurance should be forced to no, pay the insurance for not be whatever forced to pay it is. For it. Yeah, the, the it, insurance, it and, might be good if they did pay for it, but the more we force them to pay for and force them to cover, the worse the coverage is going to become for everything else because you just simply can't put everything under that umbrella. Also don't think we should have to use insurance at all. No, well, and, and that's, again, part of the reason why we're so d heavily dependent upon insurance in this country is because the government has provided special advantages for that process that they don't afford to other things. And so now we have a third-party payer system in healthcare that just doesn't work. But again, it was, you know, the majority wanted it, so I guess that makes it good. Okay, so before, can I, I want to propose something real no quick problem. before you get into your story because I know it's going to take a while. <laughs> I did say um, you guys are welcome to interrupt. I, I think we need to, when we're talking about democracy, we need to remember that us and our audience are on the right, probably. Might have some leftists listening. That'd be great. But uh, we're on the right. There are those on the left, and those two sides are always politically active. We do our research, we read, and we have formulated opinions. I think the left is extremely strategic in using language that sounds good to the mushy middle. The people that don't invest time in researching, that don't watch the news, that go about their lives and don't worry about anything. Well, let's just say they're too busy. Too which busy. Is fair. Yeah. They're too busy. Which They're is, trying to which, make ends meet. Which is fair. Um, but when they use words like democracy and they've convinced these people that what the majority believes needs to happen is equivalent with freedom, the steps to universal health care and all of these other things become much more uh, realistic in that person's mind. And I think we just need to keep that, you know, keep that in the forefront of our minds when we're having these conversations with people who aren't as politically active. No, I, th that's that's absolutely correct. We have to show we have to show the consequences of particular actions. So, like for instance, ba Bastiat said, um, Nick, uh, taxes, medi taxi medallions are the exact same thing. Can you uh, list a few of those examples? So, for those of you who don't know, um, the 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 kind of the taxi cartel in like New York City and whatnot was really really hostile toward Uber and Lyft and things like that. Well, the whole reason why Uber and Lyft really existed was because there was this untapped disruptive market for being able to provide rides to people. Well, well, the taxi industry. Well, this is going to be dangerous and people are going to use it to hurt people and they're not going to have the proper safety equipment and they don't have the proper training. Okay. Maybe, maybe not, but what most people really came to the conclusion of is, yeah, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that it's dangerous to get a ride from somebody else uh, unless they're a licensed taxi. Not to mention the fact that a lot of people that rode in New York taxis were like, oh, you guys are the gold standard on safety? Yeah. I don't think so. But taxi medallions for a while was a, basically it was monopoly privileges that had been granted to a few select companies. And it got to the point where if you wanted to buy a taxi medallion, which gave you the right to drive a taxi in, in New York City, it could cost over 300 grand. In fact, I think at one point it got close to, was it almost a half a million? It, it, was, it was nuts. It, it got nuts. And what it did is it caused, again, it limited the number of people that could actually provide rides to a city of, you know, millions of people. And then it caused the price to go up. So the government artificially, you know, prevented the market from expanding to meet the demand. 
And there was a lot of people that were were very invested in keeping those laws in place. This is another area where democracy where, where democracy needs to account for something. And it's the concept of concentrated benefits versus dispersed costs. And here's what this means. We have sugar tariffs in the United States. What that means is that if you buy domestic sugar, like domestic sugar is more expensive than a lot of foreign sugar. So we put tariffs on the foreign sugar to make it cost the same or more than the domestic sugar. And and the, the whole argument here is, well, this is good for American jobs. No, it isn't. It's good for American jobs in one industry, sugar. It's actually bad for American jobs in every other industry that uses sugar and now has to spend more money than they actually would. So no, it's not patriotic and it's not good for Americans. Secondly, here's what ends up happening. People have recognized this and said, wait a second, this, is cro- this isn't capitalism, it's cronyism. And it's inappropriate and it's wrong and we shouldn't be doing it. Well, here's the difference. Millions of Americans have gotten used to this and they don't see the fact that their grocery bill is maybe, let's say, $20 more a year than it would be without the tariffs. $20. So should they, should they have a right to save that much? Should they be able to save that money? Absolutely. Are they going to sit there and lobby Congress and go and fight to save $20 on their grocery budget a year that they don't even recognize is gone because of this tariff? No. Is the sugar industry? Yes, because it represents tens of millions of dollars from them, if not more. So the concentrated benefit goes to a very, very small sector of the economy. The, the other crazy- But the cost yeah. is dispersed around so, among so many people that they don't even recognize that they're paying it half the time. It's kind of like and state we're now, minimums and on we're, milk. And we're now, living in a, we're now living in a society and an economy where the, the amount of dispersed costs, if you actually sat down and looked at all of it, you would recognize that you're being essentially cheated out of thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars per year by your government interfering in marketplace operations. But again, they feel perfectly justified in doing so. Why? Because the majority said it was okay. That was it. A majority said it was okay. And by the way, that sugar industry is donating a whole lot more to their politicians than the average American is. So spare me the idea that the political freedom afforded through democratic processes is sufficient to create a free society. It may be necessary. I think Winston Churchill said it best. He says democracy is a horrible form of government except for all the rest. And what he was referring to was not, you know, just majoritarian rules. He was referring to more of a constitutional process or setup. But that's, that's where we're at. And that's, again, that's where I see is the big danger. This is not just a semantic argument. There is a philosophical and moral groundwork being laid to allow people to use the government to do things the government is not adequately equipped to do, nor morally should engage in, based off of no greater justification than 50% plus one said so. So, Nick, you might know this story. Um, and, and again, everybody is welcome to like ask questions whenever they want um, of, of how like the Bolsheviks won in Russia. I've got really bad news for the uh, for the super alt right people. It was not evil, mean Jewish people, <laughs> right? It was instead it was people within Russia that that pushed the Bolsheviks into power. There, 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 there's elements of the right that have this like conspiratorial view of like, oh, there must have been some like nefarious force behind how Lenin managed to take over Russia and form the Soviet Union. It must have been this group or that group. No, it was it was a very organic process. And, and here's how it played out. There's no conspiracy. The conspiracy is there is no conspiracy. Um, the way that, that Lenin managed to pull off the revolution in Russia is that he went to everybody in Russian society 
that felt like that they were the losers in society, that felt like that they were left out of the system. He went to the peasants. He went to the former recently liberated serfs. He went to the disgruntled academics that did not yet, you know, that, that, that didn't quite get that, that position within a university. He went to the disgruntled politicians that failed to win an election to the state Duma, which is their, their quasi-parliamentary system. He went to the ethnic minorities in the Russian Empire that felt like that they were discriminated against by the Tsarist government, the Ukrainians, the Latvians, the Lithuanians, the Cossacks, the Uzbeks. Um, because Russia is a very, at the time, the Russian Empire was a, was a very multi-ethnic, multinational um, empire. He went to everybody who felt like that the system was not built to their advantage. Everybody, everybody that was not a kulak or an ethnically well-connected Russian that was either tied to the church or the state in some way, right? And he went to all of those people, and there were a lot of them in Russia, he also went to the disgruntled, you know, army private that was getting shot at by the Austrians and Germans yeah. on the on the Eastern Front in World War One. And he also went to the incompetent army commanders that felt like that they had been slighted yeah. for promotion. He went to every single one of them and he said, Join me and you will have your taste at power and glory and yeah. status and revenge. And revenge. And we will overthrow the system and you will be in charge of the system. You will be the new kulaks. You will be the new army officers. You will be the new members of the Politburo. No longer the Duma. It will be the Politburo. Yeah. You will be the ones running the military and running the factories and all that stuff. And he managed to overthrow a system that had been around for almost a thousand years up to that point in time by basically cobbling together a coalition of the outcasts, a coalition of losers. Well, I, so I, I, okay, I'm going to take some issue with that. When, when, <laughs> When, when Tsarist Russia, because let, let's face it, there, there, there had been some reforms under Tsar Nicholas II, primarily because he was forced to make those reforms. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I'm not, I'm not calling peasants that were basically forced to live in serfdom for generations losers, losers in this. What I, I, I get mean, what you're saying. It's the, what I mean the by that is losing was, out. The society, was, the society was organized against them. The issue that I have right now is that— it, It's a terminology issue, I, and I'll, I'll hand it back to you in just a second. I've got the 1911. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's an inside joke that maybe we'll elaborate yeah. on. Yep. But um, what I mean by losers, I don't mean to disparage the peasants. What I mean by losers, maybe I should have been more precise with my terminology. What I mean is, is people that felt like that they had lost out— so in the peasants, in that sense, they, when I say losers, I mean lost out. I don't mean that they're bad people. So, so go ahead. No, so and, and I get that. The, the problem, the problem that I see with the United States right now is that in 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 Russia, you were in Tsarist Russia, you really were dealing with issues of like ongoing, legally sustained, systemic oppression of certain people groups for ethnic reasons, for social reasons, for economic reasons, whatever. I mean, they, they granted monopolies. They did. I mean, it was like the elites were in power and they were in power at the expense of the peasantry and everyone else. And so that was a very easy argument to make. I agree. The, the issue that I'm having within the United States is we've got a lot of people making arguments for why they're, uh, they're assuming an aggrieved status, not because they're not because they're subject to any sort of systemic legal oppression, but simply because Manufactured somebody else within the system has more than they do and that must be I mean the fact that people have more or significantly more is automatically offered as evidence of oppression, right? Disparity equals oppression. Well, no. Disparity can equal oppression. Disparity can also equal lack of productivity. 
by one person versus another person. So I, I'm about to get to that, actually. So I need to get this question as soon as you're done. But Len, Lenin, Lenin realized that Marx was not correct, right? Yeah. Marx predicted a communist revolution in industrialized societies, and that is not what happened. The communist revolutions happened in the agrarian, pre-industrialized, pre-modern societies. They happened in Russia. They happened in China. They happened in places that, that were not developed, uh, relatively rich economies. Mm -hmm. They happened in impoverished places because there were so many more people that you could point to that had been left out of the system or had yet, not yet been risen up by capitalism. And so when the communists attempted the same thing in the West, and they did in 1919, they tried it in Hungary and Germany and stuff like that, they were crushed. Um, Gramsci tried it in Italy, and he was crushed and thrown in prison by Mussolini, who had previously been allied with those type of people. But um, Nick, it's it's going to take a little bit while to, to get to the story. So if you really just need to read the question, just go ahead and read it. No, no, get, I finished the thing, it's, but I do, I do need to, we got like a bunch of questions piling up. The, the left attempted this in the West and it failed, right? Why? Because capitalism doesn't produce losers. Capitalism produces winners. And so there's less losers in society. And again, when I'm using the word loser, I mean, yeah. people left out, they're losing out. There's less losers in society in a capitalist society. The West had tried capitalism before Lenin and all those people came along. So when the Lenin acolytes tried to replicate it, they found nobody willing to overthrow the system and abolish private property because, hey, private property is making me richer. Yeah. Capitalism is making me richer. Gramsci tried that and failed. And then when he was in prison, he wrote a whole bunch of stuff about how, why he failed. Why am I in prison? And Lenin is ruling Russia. And eventually Stalin after him is ruling Russia. Why did I fail? And they succeeded. And he realized because he tried it in a society that had gotten rich off of capitalism and had risen people up. And there were thus less people that you could appeal to with grievances in order to overthrow the system. Whereas in Russia, there were a lot of those people. Yeah. And so what we, I'll end with that because we're about to get to the third part, which is how did it actually pull off in the West? But go ahead and, and read well, the question. So, so Christian Farmer Plus said, how much of what is happening in our country is due to the people's failure to participate in the process through organized protest or against the legislation that is being pushed to them? Um, I guess the, the answer is I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer. Here, here's what I would say. I think that there's, I think in Christian puts it this way all the time. He's like the, the people, the people that just want to be left alone usually lose to the people that want to control things because the people that want to control things are very happy to organize and protest and vote and run for office and, you know, and run for offices that most people don't even care about. Like, you know, water and soil board, right? Like, like School they, born. yeah, they, they will, they will get into all these offices because they have this burning desire to, they, they have ideas on the way society should work. And government is just so enticing because it has the, the, has the ability to compel, right? I, I, I once told somebody, I'm like, coexistence is not a bumper sticker you put on your car. Coexisting is, is resisting the urge to coerce those whom you can't convince, and they look at the democratic process as, oh, no, no, I'm not coercing you. I've convinced the majority. Oh, and, and what's going to happen now? We're going to coerce the 50% minus one. Now, when it comes to the selection of representatives, yeah, there's, there's limitations on what we get. You're never going to have 100% of the people agreeing on the same representative. So majoritarian processes make sense for that. When it comes to a bunch of legislators determining what constitutionally allowable laws we should pass, it makes sense to use majoritarian or democratic principles to achieve that. But it, it doesn't make sense to then use the government, again, the entity which is allowed to use aggressive force to achieve whatever you want simply because, well, we use democratic processes. 
Yeah, and that doesn't make it moral or good or appropriate. That, that was the whole purpose of setting up checks and balances and limitations on power. And, and that's the part that I feel is being diminished by this overemphasis on democracy. This is this is where the identity component comes in. Remember when I said in the beginning that like you can't separate the whole debate and question about democracy from like the identity politics type of stuff. Because what Gramsci figured out and what eventually I think the Democratic Party figured out is that traditional good old-fashioned Leninism just doesn't work. Class struggle doesn't work in a society where everybody's class status is being raised each year after another. Mm-hmm. So you have to appeal to identity. It's it's you you can call it identity Leninism. Rather than good old classical Leninism, so so what 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 do Democrats do? What do progressives do? What do people on the left do? They don't appeal to class struggle. Instead, they appeal to basically the worst characters in society. Notice how the worse off somebody acts or treats other people, the more the left loves them. Mm-hmm. The left loves the people that burned cars and streets and houses and and businesses or fly planes and buildings. They the the right. left. The left loves the Antifa people. Yeah. They, they they love the rioters and all those people from like the summer of 2020. The Warsaw, they they love all the people in Seattle and San Francisco, all the the drug addicts and homeless encampments and all the crime and in, in inner cities and stuff like that. They, the worse off that somebody acts, the more lavish praise the left gives them. You have Soros-backed DAs that will refuse to prosecute people for walking into a store and just robbing it of thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And the reason why is because those people are in our society the ones that are left out, right? They're, they're the equivalent of the Russian equivalent of the old serfs or the disgruntled academics. The left has cobbled together a coalition of people who by their identity, not by their class status— feel or can be easily manipulated into feeling like they have been marginalized and oppressed. This is also why the left constantly creates new narratives of oppression where no such oppression exists. Mm -hmm. This is why the left will never, ever be able to let go of accusing anybody of racism, even if they're the least. They will accuse Thomas Sowell of racism. They already have. They have. They called called Winsome Sears the black face of white supremacy. How many times have they- Or a tool of white supremacy. How many times have they accused conservative women of being misogynists? How many times have they accused conservative blacks of being being racist and white supremacists? Oh, they straight up call them Uncle Tom's. Exactly. Which is a horrible- And the reason why is because they must, they must- create the narrative of oppression, even when no such oppression exists in the West, in order to keep their, their, their identity based Leninist coalition together, because what they promised them is see without us, it would go back to 1959. You wouldn't have any status or power in society. You would be oppressed and you must stick with us the Leviathan that keeps swimming to the left because without us, you would have nothing in society, even to people who actually would have something in society. They, to those, they lie to them, but to other people who know, who actually know they would have nothing in society. How many, let's be honest, how many Dylan Mulvaney's would actually have power and status in society if it weren't for the the progressive machine that is putting him on beer cans? Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean... <laughs> The the issue he I knows do, that he wouldn't yeah. have power. Well, here's here's the other thing too that I I I find a little bit comical, um, and, and really frustrating, is that and we see we see this with what it, what has been like derogatorily termed the culture wars, which which the culture wars have have increasingly consisted of the left doing something, the right noticing, and then the right getting in trouble for engaging in culture wars. But the the larger issue here is is that if if you look at critical theory and how it informs things and how how it attempts to utilize democracy, 
when I see someone on the left be like, you know, I want, I'm just tired of all the divisiveness within society. I'm like, well, your political philosophy isn't. Critical theory is rooted in sowing division, or or I, or they would argue identifying natural divisions and power structures and then toppling them and replacing them with other ones. I, I'm sorry, nothing within that coalition is moving toward greater social cohesion. They don't want social cohesion because they believe the society upon which this has been built, they, be, they believe that, quote, our democracy, which is, again, that constitutional republic with a ton of limitations on government power, is actually standing in the way of majoritarian principles, standing in the way of their coalition achieving what they want to achieve. And so they benefit from division. They don't benefit from social cohesion Oh, how else unity. would they get enough people on their team so that they could yeah. vote for their will on other people? By the way, this is why the left is so obsessed with LGBTQ, XYZ, plus, plus, minus, minus, insert binomial numbers here. Yeah. I mean, at this point, the acronym just runs off forever. The reason why is because unlike these other things, there, there are limitations on, on the race component. They can only capitalize on race so much. Trump found that out because he Trump won the greatest percentage of the non-white vote of a Republican since Richard Nixon in 1960. Yeah. And... You know, Trump has has eaten into the Hispanic share and in some ways the black share of the vote. Younger um, black Americans tend to be more Republican leaning than than older ones. Yeah. Even if it's still, you know, 85, 90 percent Democrat. And so Democrats realize and also you can only capitalize on that if there's more of them, which is part of the reason that that they want open borders. But there's still limitations on that based on identity, based on how many new Hispanic or black well, voters so are being so, born. So yeah. guess what they do? How do you how do you create a dependent group that will be loyal to you rather than the rest of society because you've convinced them that if they're not loyal to you, then they would not have any power or status in society? You make more of them. Yeah. And how do you make more of them? Well, it'd be a lot difficult to just pump out more babies, especially yeah. because the left has become antenatal. And the, let's be honest, the left pushes abortion clinics in black yeah. neighborhoods right. more than they're anywhere killing, else. They're killing so, so guess many. what they do? Guess, guess how you make somebody oppressed. Oh, gosh. Let me see. Arbitrary expand, identity categories. Expand the definition of a... You convince them they're transgender. Yeah. Well, Why if, do if you you're, think if you're anywhere, left? if you're anywhere technically, I mean, if you're anywhere within the LGBTQ population, right, they will categorize you as a marginalized group. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, a marginalized group that has an entire month dedicated to them where every single major corporate entity in the United States feels absolutely compelled to put a rainbow flag up for an entire month on their logo, right? That's, that's the, that's what now passes for marginalized within the West. But to your point, that's why I said arbitrary identity um, definitions. This is why it's. This is why when when Matt Walsh said, "What is a woman?" That wasn't a very important question because what he was doing is he was asking for an objective definition. What did he get in return? Well, a woman is anybody that identifies as a woman. All right. Well, that's that's not a form of identity. Circular reasoning. It's circular reasoning. You haven't actually. The whole purpose of identification is to identify the unique characteristics, attributes, biology, which separates the thing you're identifying as from all the other things that are not that thing. Yeah, like what exactly are you <laughs> identifying as if you can't even define what that thing is? But if you but if you engage in that sort of if you engage in that sort of, you know, philosophical nonsense, then yes, you can create a ne like to your point, you can create a never-ending stream of people that now get to classify as marginalized. And oh by the way, I do find it interesting 
that one of the, the biggest growths in some of this category is actually young women, which typically were, were not you know, overly diagnosed with gender dysphoria. But now, but now if you fall into certain categories and all of a sudden you're an oppressor and there is no way to escape it except to become part of a marginalized group, well, then this is the way that you can do it. Again, look at the Democratic coalition and who they appeal to and why they appeal to them and what language they use when they appeal to them. They, they constantly use, you are under attack, we are protecting you, you are oppressed, you are, you are valid, we're going to validate you, and, and if you don't side with us, the right will take over, even though they never do. Have you ever noticed that? Even when the right wins elections, they never actually get anything done. Oh, As I, I said, I'm old the Leviathan re- only swims to the left. I remember when Trump was uh, elected... And we knew one in particular person who was a member of the LBGTQ community who, no joke, was out there on social media talking about Trump's going to round people up and put them in concentration mm-hmm. camps for being LBGTQ. They full-fledged believed it. Oh, oh, I mean, look at what they say about what's going on in Florida right now. They're engaged in literal genocide. Yeah. This is this goes back to the right wing backlash thing is that like point is, is that the left has has got has cobbled together every blue haired, mentally ill, unstable, unsuccessful malcontent in society. And every person that's not that but has been able to be convinced that they're being oppressed by somebody else or that they're they're under attack and if they didn't throw their support behind the democrats they would have nothing left in society they have managed to build a majority coalition of people who feel like they're under attack despite the fact that together they're a majority and they've convinced them Vote with us, lockstep, vote blue no matter who, because if you don't, it's going back to the 1950s, baby, despite the fact that whenever the right even does marginally win elections, when a Reagan or a Trump comes along, the politics and the culture continues to swim to the left anyway. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, this is why... I think the democratic system is ultimately doomed. Okay, so I, wait, wait. We're going to stop right there. Stop <laughs> have right I made there. a good case? No, no, stop right there. I, that's the next part that we're going to get into right now is that, you know, again, it's instead of instead of engaging in like theoreticals or, or whatnot, you know, we, we've laid, I've laid, I've tried to lay it out my case on why I believe the overemphasis on democracy, which when the left utilizes that term, I don't think they mean um, democracy in the sense that Madison meant a republic or the way that dictionary.com currently classifies it. I think they mean democracy more in terms of majoritarianism. Um, and, and they believe that, you know, their coalition, you know, should be able to, to, to get those, you know, again, engage in that sort of majoritarianism because it provides a moral framework for using government force to achieve what they want. Because I don't think they place a great deal of value on economic freedom. We see this all the time. When they talk about freedom from want, what they say is that the government should provide you health care, the government should provide you housing, or the government should provide you food, or the government should provide you clothing. Well, these things all still have to be produced. Is there a, is there a secret government box I don't know about where they can just lift and pull it out? No, the government depends on the labor of other people and the, and the resources of other people in order to achieve these things. And so the more you put the government in, make the government responsible for providing products and services, the less economic freedom that you have. Not to mention the fact that the government has a horrible track record through centralized planning of actually producing a surplus of any of those things. Whereas free market economies have an excellent record of doing it. And so 
That's my the, my overall argument is that they are putting so much emphasis on democracy because it is automatically tied in our minds to a political system and using politics as the way to achieve your end states as opposed to using voluntary cooperation within the marketplace. That's my problem with it. I don't have a problem with democratic processes per se. I think, again, I think there's necessary for a free society. They're not sufficient. Christian, however, is going to go into a larger thing on on, again, his problems with why he thinks democratic efforts ultimately lead toward what it what I mean, I don't yeah. want to put words can, in your mouth. Can I do a quick point of clarification real yeah. quick? Because this comes from way further up in the chat. We're having a hard time keeping up with the chat. Sorry, yeah. guys. Um, somebody did ask, because we talked about positive rights real quick. We touched yeah. it on that real fast. And you literally just touched on it for a second here. Um, so this person asked if... Um, Aren't voting rights and the right to a fair trial just positive rights? Oh, this and is an excellent question. And my my point with that is you're dealing with the government itself when it puts you on trial. You have a right against the government to a fair trial. Yeah. You have a right to exercise a vote. And this is you interacting with your government. You don't have a right to vote on the business decisions of the person down the road in, you know, yes. your restaurants or whatever. Your your right to vote doesn't extend to the private sector. So it is not a positive right on the private sector. It is a right within the government for you to enforce I, what you want in the government. I think that that was a, a beautiful description. Here's the only thing I'll here's the only it's, other it's, thing I will it's add. It's private on to it. versus public. It's it's yeah. Here, it's here's the, the only, government. Here's the only thing I would add is that the only reason why you have a right to vote is because there is a government that is going to do something, right? The reason why you have a like a right to an attorney. Yeah. Right. You having a right to attorney doesn't mean I can wake up. I can walk out right now and be like, oh, I need to see to a tax attorney. Hey, tax attorney, exactly. do my taxes for me for free. Set up my corporate, I have a right to an attorney. It's right there in the constitution. No, you have a right to attorney if the government is taking a positive action. Is charging you with a crime. Is charging with a crime. So that that's what so it you is. You don't have a right to, yeah. you know, an attorney when you're just. You don't have a right to free by, legal advice. You got sued by your neighbor. So you have a right to a, no, no, it's okay. not the same thing. I got another, I got another question right here. Here's the other thing too. I would just ask guys, like sometimes the reason why questions go through is because we're on a particular topic and the question actually applies to somebody else, but we try uh, to get to those as this well. This one about, um, why was Castro allowed I'm, to I'm die? I'm doing right now. Okay, yeah. Good. Yeah. So from, from, uh, Kutin, a question, why was Castro allowed to die comfortably in his bed surrounded by people that honored him after terrible things he did after what he did to JFK? Uh, Obama could have taken him out. He, he could have, it would have been considered an aggressive military action against a sovereign state. Um, so it would have been it actually required a declaration of war. I, I don't know that that was necessarily the best um, the best course of action. Um, all right, so Christian, I want to get into this because you, you and I, I think, have some disagreements with respect to the efficacy of democratic processes. So what, what's your, I've got, what's your I, I've take? got one line, um, or, or I, I've got something that I wrote up, um, and I th th this basically encapsulates my thought, and, and this is why I think democracy is ultimately doomed. Yeah. Um, Here's what I wrote. I said, um, the U.S. the U.S. historically has no track record of of absolute government, but that doesn't mean that we 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 won't in the future, right? Mm -hmm. I, I love when people say like, "Oh, it can't happen here." It, it totally can. It happened in Europe, which was just as developed and free as the U.S. was at one point. Um, I mean, just think about it. The, the the returns, the promise of absolute power that that you know has enticed people for thousands of years. It's just it's just too large. Mm -hmm. I think at some point somebody will try to grab that power. Um, and here's what I say. It's all that he, or most likely at this rate, she, will have to say 
is this. Give me power, all of you blue-haired, mentally ill Zoomers, all those perpetually outraged malcontents demanding people constantly validate them, all those woke progressives with no marketable skills, all of you, give me power. Because if you don't, we're going to go back to the 1950s. The GOP will take over. And all of you are going to have to follow Jordan Peterson's advice and make your bed, clean your room, and actually contribute something to society. You'll be on your own. You'll be outcasts. You won't have any power or status. All of you, give me power, and together, we will rule. How long is it going to take for us to get to that point? I don't think it's going to take that long. But I will say this. I think the left is going to be beaten to it. I've said this before. I think the right is going to beat the left to it. The left simply has, as what it felt has brought up in our previous episode on, on Thursday, they've made the crucial mistake of cobbling together a coalition of people centered around opposition to young men. And that is going to be their Achilles heel. Because when push comes to shove and the message is all the blue-haired, mentally ill, woke Zoomers are going to come together with their degrees in poetry and they're going to stage some sort of revolution to try to seize power or else, oh no, they're going to have to, to do personal responsibility. They're, they're going to be crushed by the 20-something, 30-something-year-old men that have felt ridiculed, humiliated, degraded, ignored. Those are the ones that are going to seize power. And this is going to be post-collapse of the dollar, post when the yeah, federal yeah. government can't, you know, won't be able to enforce its will. When the fight is between a 20-something-year-old Chad that, you know, worked out at the gym every single day and some mentally ill 20-something-year-old female college student that, you know, uses they-them pronouns, I'm willing to bet the Chad is going to win every single time. Mm-hmm. And... I had somebody call me a chat on here. I don't even know what yeah, that means. It's, oh, yeah, it, it's we had a whole conversation. Term. Apparently, it's a good guy. The uh, chat is a good guy. The, um, the Ch- point Chad, is, is... Chad typically has a derogatory... No, no, it no. You, in no, the it chat, doesn't. they were saying, this is a guy that, like, he's a good dude, and he'll help you out. And he's, It definitely he's like, doesn't. Anyway, yeah. the, 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 the point is, is that the <laughs> left eventually, I think, will try to push for that message that I just sent out. Okay, but that, I don't that, think it's going to work. Okay, so that's a messaging. So here's what I'm saying. That's a messaging process mm-hmm. in order to achieve a democratic result. No. But we're specifically, to, well, wait a second. No, that is the democratic result. The democratic result is the, the uh, achieving a power through an election cycle. Now, what happens after that is, I imagine, what you're, you're getting into. But here's my problem. If, if the argument is going to be they're going to use these democratic processes to seize power and then essentially you know, effectively eliminate democratic processes, well, then you could argue that Okay, well, then part of the problem, maybe not the entire problem, but part of the problem here is the absence of democratic processes once they seize power. No, what's going to actually happen is, is that young men are going to see this message, and increasingly, that, that's why they keep being attracted to people like Andrew Tate. That's also why they, they were attracted to people like okay, Donald Trump. Okay, but what does this have to do with the, go- the critique what, of democracy? What's going to happen is, is that people are going to become radicalized on the right, and the left is going to be the one who radicalized them. And eventually, when the chips are down... And the ability to do so is is open because we have a debt crisis or we have a hyperinflationary collapse of the dollar, whatever it is that distracts the the federal government from being able to fund things like the FBI and the ATF and all those other organ, all the alphabet yeah. boys. Yeah. What's going to happen is, is that eventually younger men are going to be like, you know what? These people keep using us as the punching bag. Why don't we just seize power ourselves? Okay, but okay. I get and all of that. That's going to be the end of democracy. I, uh, okay. 
but <laughs> so I'm not I'm not arguing with any of that. But like the, what would we? I guess here's my point, <laughs> and I, and I think we're all coming to the same conclusion here. We may just be talking in circles at this point. I have no problem with with democratic processes. Like I, I again, I think democratic processes are necessary for various things. Democratic processes are a good way to select political leadership when political or, or political representation. When that representation is in power and they have to decide between which laws, democratic processes are a good way in order to determine which laws go up to the next level. Right? And, and not because they're perfect, not because it's going to choose, you know, ideal outcomes, but because it's the most appropriate. My fundamental argument here is that if we're not talking about de- democracy or democratic processes within a government structure at the same time that we're talking about those things which are appropriate or inappropriate for government to do, if we're not talking about the importance of economic freedom corresponding with political freedom, then we are missing out. And what I see from the left is that they have they've basically made political freedom all about getting to vote, mm-hmm. not limitations on government power. And they've made economic freedom all about what the government will hand to you at the expense of somebody else. And neither one of those things is genuine freedom. And that's why democracy, I think, is doomed, Nick, because the left has made it all about freedom is synonymous with voting. And that's the that's the pinnacle. Again, that's the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's self-actualization. The right, I think, is eventually going to get to a point where they come to realize well, this system is being used by the left to oppress us. We're going to tear this system down once we have a chance to do so. So that way they can stop oppressing us. And the thing that scares me is that eventually somebody on the right is going to come along and they're going to be like, you know what? We tried classical liberalism and it just didn't work. No, I, I do worry about that. I worry about I that. Do, I do worry about that. I, I, I worry that there's... You know, again, growing up, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't grow up knowing anybody that could be classified as, um, you know, genuinely like right wing authoritarian. Uh, actually, and, and most of most of the people I knew that were categorized as liberals uh, weren't weren't terribly authoritarian. They they wanted more government than I wanted, but they were adamant defenders of things like freedom of speech. And now, I mean, I think that's why we distinguish between liberalism and leftism. Leftism, I think, is almost inherently authoritarian. Yes. Um, the, the problem that I have with liberalism is liberalism doesn't seem to understand that the more power that you give to government entities, the more you actually push toward leftism. Because, because again, I don't, know how, I don't know how else to emphasize this. Freedom to do what? Right. The, the reason why our, our the reason why our country was established in such a way was because we recognize that the vast majority of things that you do that give your life meaning have nothing to do with the government unless the government is constantly trying to take it over. Because right. the, the, the vast majority of problems that I solve in my life have nothing to do. With voting, it has everything to do with engaging in voluntary transactions with other people in the marketplace who are also trying to make their life better. And then, amazingly enough, when people are free to do that, because we focus on the competitive nature of capitalism, they never want to focus on the cooperative nature of capital. Right. There is far more cooperation in capitalism than there is competition even. Not that either one is, you know, competition is not a bad thing. But the important thing to remember here is that people that think, well, capitalism creates winners and losers. No reality does. Decisions do. And cronyism does. Yeah, the, the difference is, is that in a system where people are making voluntary transactions, it's not that 
you're a winner and you're a loser. It's that that idea was better than that one. And oh, by the way, by adopting the better idea, more people benefit. But if I don't have the freedom to do that, because someone has decided that democratically electing leaders that will now centrally plan and control the economy and resources is synonymous with freedom, well, then everything that actually gives your life meaning when we think of liberty or freedom is essentially replaced with some sort of, at best, at best, government-imposed mediocrity because they'll now decide how the resources are distributed. That's why it's so crazy to me. Before we started the podcast today, uh, we were... We were just kind of joking, jokingly looking at um, Nick's opponent's website because she went around apparently to a few Democratic committees and said, Nick Freitas wouldn't dare <laughs> to debate me. And we looked at her website and it basically says, you know, we believe that you should be free from other people's beliefs and all of this. And it came in at some point and says, we believe that government should be a force for good. I I feel like that is a, an incredibly terrifying five-year-old. It's a terrifying statement. And the reason why is because she believes that the government should be a force for good. Good according to who? Good according to her. Turns out she was a massive proponent of, you know, forced vaccination and forcing I don't know, people I, to I, mask. I don't know about that. I don't oh, know. Okay, about okay. That. Well, leftists typically were. And so it is interesting when they want to use and wield the government for, quote, good. And it just depends on what the good is. What's who says it's good? I mean, there's it, the the definition of good has really, really changed. Over well, but the past that's the thing. It, it will be democratic processes that will determine what is good. Right. What, and then and the argument is, what's the alternative? So it's might makes right. It's it's, you know, 50 percent plus one. Like but I said, there's a question on here. Uh from Joel Solomon. And he says, question, how does Christian's doomerism respond to, may, quote, maybe the horse will learn to sing, meanwhile, I'm buying myself time, quote, uh, as I mentioned above. Did you happen to see that? No, no. What did he say of, above? I would I would love to. It, it the, It's a reference to a book, I believe. Let's see. Yeah, I didn't get the reference, the whole maybe the horse will learn to sing. Okay. Can you give us more information, Joel, please? Thank yeah, you. um, I, I, I'd be happy to answer the question. Maybe, but he, like, maybe we uh, need to book, read Christian, the book I'm, that you're I'm going to send you a screenshot about. of his comments. Okay, so just cool. A um, so, like, tear, tear down what I said, Nick. Like, like if, if you can. Like, because I, you and I, I think, do agree on some things in terms of, like, we're both worried that the, the you know the right will abandon ca classical liberalism. We're both worried potentially about a rise of authoritarianism, certainly majoritarianism. I, I think I think you're I think you're more. I I think it's problematic to essentially accuse um, democracy or democratic processes in and of themselves as the primary problem here. And and the only reason I say that is because if you're talking about majoritarianism, I agree. I think majoritarianism is a, is a dangerous way to think. Um, or to exclusively think about making rules or laws within society or whatnot. I think it has its place. This is why I say democratic processes within certain areas are perfectly fine. But like, for instance, nobody would want democratic processes at a restaurant. If you walked into a restaurant and instead of being to order what you wanted based off of your individual taste, dietary needs, and budget, you had to order something based off of what a majority of the people in the restaurant ordered, and then you paid for it based off of what a majority of the people in the restaurant decided you would pay, nobody would go to that restaurant. We would not consider that restaurant a, a beacon of freedom. 
And if someone said, oh, you don't want to go to this restaurant, you're anti-democratic. We would say, and you're a moron, <laughs> right? So it's about understanding the democratic processes work very well within certain categories and work very poorly within other ones. So I, I think there's no disagreement there. The disagreement I have is that whenever we start saying that, well, the real problem here is that, you know, and, and not saying that you suggested this, but some people do. The real problem here is we just have too many people voting or only these people should get to vote. I, I, like, so for instance, originally it was, you could only vote if you were like a landowner or you could be drafted. Now, the, the reason behind that was you had to have essentially skin in the game with respect to either paying taxes or going to war. And the reason why is because if you're getting the benefits of government without paying any taxes or you're getting the benefits of, of um, you know, government action without having to contribute, well, then you have a positive incentive to basically steal from other people through the mechanisms of government. And that's a very real concern. By the same token, if you don't have a say, the government can now be weaponized against you with respect to the laws that you're going to have to be subject to. And so it's very, very difficult. I mean, I think we should be cognizant of the practical issues surrounding any system of government and recognize that democracy is not some magical word that doesn't take away very, very real concerns about how it can be misapplied or abused. Having said that, when it comes to democratic processes, again, the United States is not a pure democracy. Really, nobody is, but we're a constitutional republic that relies on democratic processes to select our representatives and then for our representatives to select which bills or policies are going to be moved up to the executive branch to vote on DeVito, et cetera. That's what we are, right? And you might even add a federalist constitutional republic because we also like separation of powers between the federal and the state governments as well. And none of this is perfect. All of it is designed to try to keep government within its proper place. And one of the things it does is it keeps entities within the government competing with one another for power. Okay, because because so the consolidation. So that's a long explanation all to say that I, I don't think attacking the democratic processes is the proper approach. Because I don't see a different matter, I don't see a different method for selecting one's representatives or for representatives selecting one's legislation. I don't see another method that is superior to that, even with all of its flaws. What I see is the primary problem is people not understanding that that it's not just about political freedom. It has to also be about a degree of social and economic freedom, or else the term essentially becomes meaningless in any practical respect in our day-to-day -day lives. So I, a couple things. I, first off, we should never use this clock ever again. Um, second <laughs> off, um, oh, it's just so frustrating how it, it beeps at a, it when it gets to 99 minutes. Um, second off, I've got the, um, the question, although I don't really see a question. I just see a bunch of statements. Um, Joel, Joel um, Solomon says, however black-pilled doomer Christian goes, we still have to try to hold things back as much as we can. Nick, do you know the fable of Nasruddin and maybe the horse will learn to sing? And then he explains what it is. By the way, Nasruddin was a, um, a Turkish poet in the Middle Ages, I believe. Um, he, he says briefly, Nasruddin gets out of a death sentence by promising to teach the sultan's horse to sing. He's given a year to succeed or else. And every day he goes to the royal stables to give lessons. Someone eventually asks him, uh, why he's doing this, considering that the you know the prospect of getting the horse to sing is impossible. And Nasruddin replies, a lot can happen in a year. Maybe I get a pardon. Maybe I manage to escape. Maybe I die in bed. And who knows? Maybe the horse will learn to sing. <laughs> um, 
I will say this. That's You're buying time. We, it's kind of what we're doing, I guess. I have come to the belief that um, it is too far gone for us to vote our way out of this problem. But it is too early to resort to anything else. But are you against buying us time? And so, <laughs> well, there's two ways to go about it. You could go the DeSantis way, try to buy time. I know a lot of people that are supporting DeSantis because they think he's going to roll back the, the left's nonsense. But then you also have the accelerationists that think we need to push the pedal to the metal and just get this thing over with. Because the right has the ability to reshape this country in a positive direction right now. If, if, if everything goes, goes to hell and the debt crisis happens and inflation happens and all this stuff, the right right now is still committed to liberal democracy or are still committed to classical liberalism. And the right right now could absolutely take power if the federal government was out of the picture. And so if you speed it up right now, maybe we can actually salvage Christian's the system. Christian's going full and cap on this. <laughs> no, I'm kind of going full accelerationist. And I know Tyler's going to be disappointed because he does not like the accelerationists. Well, I, there, there's a, we, we might. I'm not do, actually going full We might actually do an episode in the future on the, on the whole idea of what they call the, the dark enlightenment. Um, and it kind of explains this other position. They're torn on this. Yeah, they, they, it, it's this really interesting concept. And there's there's so much I don't agree with them on. But there's other parts where, again, they have an interesting perspective uh, that I, I think is, is fun to analyze. And maybe, maybe one day we'll do that. I got a couple of questions here that we want to get to. Uh, one said uh, from uh, – uh, I'm sorry. I, I know I'm going to butcher your name, and I really apologize. I think it's uh, Kelly Kaiku Kutin. A question, why do Democrats clamor for D.C. statehood against U.S. Constitution, District of Columbia, specifically can't be a state opposed to Puerto Rico, which is a no-brainer in comparison? I honestly think at this point they, they would go for both, but I, the obvious reason why they would want D.C. before they would want Puerto Rico is that I think there's a world where conservatives are competitive in Puerto Rico. I don't think, I can't imagine a world where conservatives are competitive in D.C. Well, imagine D.C. as a state. You just, two it's, senators it's literally one city. Yeah. And they would get a congressman and two, and two state yeah. two that, senators. That's that's the easy answer. It's the same reason why it's the same reason why the left would never want Northern California and Southern Oregon to break off and become a state because we all know what what it's going to do to the, to the power balance, to especially the in the Senate. Yeah. In fact, if you go back and you look at a lot of the arguments um, leading up to the Civil War, so much of it was built on the the power differential within the Senate because the Senate holds a great deal of power. Um, so th that's why. Um, Marco G asks, um, what do you think needs to be changed in order to make the American political system a better tool to protect the freedoms of the majority of small people from the wealthy and influential? You know, this is interesting. It, it's not that I don't think, like, I, I honestly believe that as I compare government systems across space and time, I, I think it's hard to argue um, for, for me anyways, it would be very, very What, what was the question? How do you, you read it off really fast. Okay, listen. What do you think needs to be changed in order to make the American political system a better tool to protect the freedoms of the majority of small people from the wealthy and influential? Well, I, see, I think the problem is actually the opposite. I think that that we have a tyranny of the majority, and it's it's the the successful people, whatever you want to call them. It, it it's it's just ordinary people that just want to live their lives that are the ones that are actually the ones being oppressed, but they're never going to form a collective group identity built around oppression because they are successful. Because they want Instead, to be left alone. <laughs> it's the weirdos and losers within the Democratic coalition and then people that have been convinced that they're 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 being oppressed that aren't actually weirdos and losers. It's a weird coalition. It's a top bottom coalition. Weirdos and losers. And, and no, I'm, that that's what I'm going to keep calling it. It's the coalition oh of the losers. And and 
It is. If you are if you are on the progressive left, it is because you are a loser or you want to lead losers. You're either a demagogue wanting to lead losers or you are a loser yourself. You're either Lenin or you're the useful idiots. And well, I'm just I'm just glad he's left a lot of room for nuance in that position. <laughs> and, All right. Well, let me let me get let me let me get to, let me get to answering his question. Um, when it, when it comes to uh, the the freedom of the majority. Um, from the wealthy and influential, I, I think I think what he's referring to is the fact that, um, you know, it, it is it, if you are wealthy and influential, you have the ability to influence, you know, Congress and and regulations and subsidies and things like that in a way that say uh, a majority of just you know nine to five working Americans are probably not going to be able to do. And I and I think that's that's probably accurate. The the issue that I have is is that every solution that I see people come up whether it's like limiting campaign finance reform, these things don't actually achieve the objectives that they're looking for. What it actually does is protects incumbents against challengers. That that usually ends up being the end result. When when people come up with uh, other processes um that, that essentially tried to restrict actions within the marketplace or political speech, I think it just yields to more problems that, again, incumbents or the entrenched take advantage of at the expense of everybody else. So so really, I, I think the, the problem is so many people will look for things like economic regulations. Um, it may be minimum wage laws. It may be um, redistribution efforts or things like that in order to achieve greater equity in society or, or take... And, and all of them have the effect of essentially being written by the people that they, they're theoretically trying to regulate. And then all of them also seem to have the effect of either rising costs on the very people that are trying to help or preventing the economic opportunities that those people need in order to move up the economic ladder. So the, the real thing that I think it comes down to is that I don't know how you, you create an additional political process that we don't already have within our checks and balances system. What you need to remember is that you can write you can write a system of government as brilliantly as possible, put it on parchment, and, and, and have it be unassailable philosophically. If people don't believe in it, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. People actually have to be passionate for their freedoms to actually depend it and hold the government at bay. Because even when you put in the restrictions that all of our founders did, go look at Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution which is supposed to lay out the enumerated powers of the federal government and then go look at what Congress is actually doing. So if, if I had to pick two things that I think would at the very least restrict the amount of federal intervention that we've seen in everything and allow for, for greater, greater coexistence and respect for, for individual liberty and freedoms, the two things I would do is repeal the 16th Amendment to the Constitution and the 17th Amendment to the Constitution. Because the 16th Amendment provided the federal government the opportunity to be able to coerce states to do things states never would have agreed to or the individuals never would have agreed to because now they can essentially raise your income taxes without limit. And then they can keep all that money at the federal level unless you do what the federal government wants. So it used to be when the federal government would try to impose its will, states would be like, no, that, that's not constitutional. That falls outside of Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. Now what the federal government does is says, no, 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 we're not forcing you to do this. We're simply setting up this additional program, which appears nowhere in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution. However, we have all this money here, and if you'd like to get some of it, you better do what we say. So that's, that's the problem with the 16th Amendment. And with the 17th Amendment, again, I'm sorry, if you want to preserve federalism, 
the, the Senate was supposed to be the Senate was supposed to be the state's voice at the federal government. The House was supposed to be the people's voice in the broader sense. And so, repealing those two things would be the mo- would be the two obvious structural things I would do in order to pro- to provide for greater freedom in society. There is a great question in here from Bandit eight four eight. It says, <laughs> if it wasn't for Nick's skills from the military service, would Christian give him a run for being local warlord? No, Nick would. Pro- <laughs> I uh, can see the biggest problem okay, that I, I have. I have a theory, you guys. Okay, so I don't know how many of you in the chat play like Civilization or Age of Empires or any of those, <laughs> but I have this theory that like some of the most freedom loving people are absolute tyrants on the game. <laughs> oh yeah, you all. When you're playing Civilization, you don't win through the culture victory. You yeah. conquer. You <laughs> nuke your enemies and then take their capitals. I know. I just I watch some of these guys play this game, and I'm going, wow, wow. Tyler um, and I actually play a lot of Paradox games. Tyler bought me Victoria Three, which is really fun. It's set in the in the Victorian era. It's a it's a Paradox game. There, Paradox games are all about basically can you rebuild the Roman Empire and yeah. See, no, no. Why why would I be the warlord? <laughs> because I've got a lot of guns and Christian plays Paradox games. I have guns too, <laughs> but they're mostly like bolt action Mauser <laughs> antiques and yeah. stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, they're they're, they're flintlocks. No, no. And- like like honestly, one thing that I need to do. And I'm saying it on the podcast, so maybe there'll be some accountability here, um, is I need to, and I probably won't have a ton of time to do it until later in the summer when I'm done with school stuff, but like, I need to start going to the gym and like working out. I read a comment from somebody that's like, wouldn't it be really cool if, if Christian like went to the gym, got totally ripped, shaved his head, and then grew a big beard and just became a, a full-blown chat? We can make I this support happen. this endeavor. I think we could do we, this in a, one a year. Audience, audience, vote right now. Like we already, we did, we did our last video, our last podcast was all about a 90-day challenge. 90-day we'll challenge. We'll put Christian on two-a-days. We're going <laughs> to, we get, we can, I, I'm telling you, man, like Million Dollar Man Hurt, we can make him stronger. We can make him <laughs> <laughs> I but, audience vote right now. Should Christian commit Christian and Hamilton, the two single guys le- looking for brides, right? And and Christian believes we're all going to be living in some sort of Mad Max dystopian future where he's going to need to at least have some warlord cap- capacity. The, I can't hey, just be this, an intellectual. You know what? The, I thought I was not going to get the opportunity to ask this question for Bastia, but here we're, you go, Bastia. Here's your question. He said, you need to tell everybody what your workout is. Stop holding out on everyone. Leave a number one in the comments if you I can't agree. believe I found the opportunity to say it. <laughs> one if you agree. Look at all the ones coming in. Um, <laughs> I, you, Nick, you, you had um, something that you brought up about, like, you know, the division of power and stuff oh, like hold that. Hold on. Are we moving on from this time? No, no, no. I've, I've, I've got one line that, that'll, that's okay. going to transition to the... Um, Make Christian strong again. <laughs> the whole working out thing. <laughs> so, I like... I, Montesquieu thought he was like a genius when he came up with this idea. They're like, oh, see, we're going to have the legislators and the bureaucrats and the judges all, you know, divide power between them. And then they're going to be conflicting powers and it's going to be this division of power and, and, yeah. and you know, the, the fight between the legislative and judicial branches that's going to result in a check in government. Okay, so pray tell, Monsieur Montesquieu, how exactly do you plan on that system working when all the legislators and judges and bureaucrats all send their kids to the same institution to get educated, all buy their goods from the same companies that are indoctrinating them, all consume media from the same companies that are indoctrinating them? 
How exactly are they going to check each other when they're all ideologically aligned with one another? Well, okay, let, let's it's give- It's not going to work. Let's give Montesquieu <laughs> some credit. He's not wrong in the separation of powers. No, he's definitely not. But it's not a foolproof. I mean, it's not It's not. That, as that's if, my point. It's not yeah. a foolproof system. I'm not saying, and this is why y'all need to hand power to me. No, what I'm saying is, is that the idea on the separation of powers, especially within government and between layers of government yeah. working, it works great on paper, but what happens when they all work in, in unison? Well, yeah. You, you have problems. You because, have what we currently have. You yeah. have the kekistocracy. Oh, <laughs> or what people call the uni party. Oh, or sorry, the the way, so entertaining of, right Speaking now. of democracy, Christian, we're going to the gym, man. Uh, you, yeah. have been, uh, you have been voted. And they, uh, wait, do you guys authorize me to use force to compel? <laughs> <laughs> Not a good the people right. have the reason, <laughs> the reason that like conservatives need to start going to the gym. It's unanimous. And they need to get armed is because- Again, the positive way that this ends versus the negative way that this ends. There's a lot that Nick and I disagree on. I'm much more, I'll just flat out and say, I'm much more apprehensive towards democracy as a term. And I, I, I get where Nick is coming from. But the thing that we do agree on and that I think also Hamilton agrees with and Tina agrees with is that we are not moving towards the ideal system of government that we want. We're moving, we're moving towards catastrophe. And if we're moving towards catastrophe and eventually the train will derail one way or another, it will. Fiat currencies have a 100% failure rate. Yeah. We need to make sure that the thing that replaces it is not right-wing authoritarianism and it's not left-wing authoritarianism. The thing that needs to be replacing the system is a revitalization of the Constitution as our founders envisioned it. Well, no, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, a big a big part of, of why we engage culturally like this is because we're trying to make sure that when certain problems take place the nature of the problem and the cause is properly diagnosed so that we can actually offer a solution to it, which will work. Um, now we've got a couple of questions here. We got to go into, let me see, where's a question with limiting the pay of Congress to the mean income of the nation, about 55 K. Um, and when they get paid to when they are in the office, like the rest of us, Help weed out the cronies. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I think I, you're I just opening so. up. You're opening them up to um, being willing to wheel and deal for money, I, so especially it, promises after their term or what. I yeah. mean, they can. Well, if and, and you make them hungry, they're going to go for it. Yeah, let, let's let's keep. So I, I so here's what I would be in favor of. I, I think the best way to kind of limit what Congress does is to actually make it a citizen legislature. Which is to say, like in Virginia, I'm not in I'm not in Richmond for half the year. I'm in Richmond for 45 days on odd years and 60 days in even years, and that's it. Go there, do your business, leave. Right, that's it. Texas state legislature only meets once every two years, and somehow Texas hasn't descended into flames because their politicians aren't actively legislating on a day to day basis. So here, here's what I would say: I, I think we move back to. I don't think it's necessarily their pay. Um, their pay is about $175,000 a year, which is, which is a good amount of pay. The one thing I would keep in mind though, is that they don't get like lodging in per diem when they're in, when they're in session. So they end up having to have one house where they live and they end up having to get an apartment or sleep in their office or something like that in DC and DC isn't cheap. So it, as much as, as 175 a year sounds, and it, and it is, that is a great chunk of money. A lot of it gets eaten up in, in 
you know, lodging when they're in DC. There's also laws that prevent them from having any side gigs. Yeah. They, yeah. It's, so it's, they can't make more than like something like 28,000 a year or 27,000 a year. It depends on what it is. They, depending on what it there's is. There's stuff they can do with book sales and stuff like that. And of course, that's why so many of them get rich on the stock market. Right. right. Because even if they, even if you didn't have strictly insider information, you're still getting the, you're still getting the publicly available information way ahead of time. Not to mention the fact that you can always give off stock tips to friends and family. So I would say that here, here's another thing. Here's another thing that's interesting. Thomas Sowell actually said, rather than cut their pay, Thomas, Thomas Sowell, who I love, I don't necessarily agree with this. He goes, it actually might be better to pay them a lot more. It, it might be better to pay Congress so much that it just doesn't, they, they're not, they're not easily. It was Thomas Sowell, right? He said, give them a million dollars. He's like, he's like, <laughs> it was like, he was like, it would be cheaper to give each member of Congress like $5 million a year. And that way, they don't got to worry about being, you know, bribed to do this or worrying about their job with Pfizer after. Now, again, I think they collect their five million and then just get their job with yeah, Pfizer. Yeah, I think right? he was so joking, but it's a fair going. point. I, I think what we, I think what would be a better system is you. What would be a better system is is you convert Congress into a citizen legislature. I would have them showing up to D.C. maybe maybe twice a year for a relatively short period of time. Maybe once at the at the um, um, beginning of the year, and then maybe once in like late summer, early fall. Uh, and that would just be to ad- that adjust things. That way they have things. to go back and deal with the laws they made. That would be just to adjust things and, and, and to do that. I, I wouldn't pay them a, a great deal of money to be in Congress, but I would pay them lodging and per diem when they were in D.C. And what that would do is that would encourage them to temporarily stay in D.C. and then go back home because their actual job, the one that made them money, you know, I, I think it would, it would be more likely to be back home. now. Yeah, because fun fact, you don't have to live... In no, the district that represent you it. represent. Like, for instance, Abigail Spanberger, as far as I know. She moved. She moved. Well, she's, okay. Well, so, but, but part, there was but a practical reason for that for Congress, what's initially. crazy is, is in Congress, you can literally live in D.C. from then on out and never go back to, you know, West people Virginia where you're from. or yeah. Sometimes people lose primaries because they haven't been back to their districts in like 10 years or something like yeah. that. Yeah, you can get back. Yeah. All right, let's 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 go to another question here. It's like, we've tried the small limited government approach. We know where that leads. How will revitalization end up differently? So here, here's what I think is interesting. It's the whole cycle of history debate, right? And, and you have that kind of like the little meme that it's, you know, strong men or hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create bad times times. And then, but you also have these cycles where it, it goes through this process where once society has reached a certain degree of affluence, um, it, it, it tends to decay into kind of like hedonistic, uh, impulses. I mean, you look at right now, it, I guarantee you, if there was a major military threat to the United States, or there was a major catastrophe that we had to contend with, no, but I'm sorry, but we would not be having all this issues with like culture war stuff. Right. And, and again, you can say that derogatorily, but it's like all these people saying like, I'm a victim because, you know, I'm trans. If the Russians invaded, nobody would consider that to be a real issue because the Russians are here, right? Just look at Ukraine, right? Perfect example of, oh, oh, I'm trans. Great. Here's your rifle. Russians are that way. Right, nobody was buying that crap. Oh, there's Western media that keeps running these articles yeah. about how trans women in Ukraine are being forced to to fight the Russians. This is so unjust. Nobody in Ukraine is running these stories. Yeah. It's only Western <laughs> yeah. press is sitting in their comfortable offices in New there, York there's, City. There's something to be said, and and again, I don't agree with this, but there's something to be said for the people that basically say, "Look, war abroad is peace at home." 
Um, now that's not always true. It's definitely it's, not it's, true. It's not always true, and I think it's a horrible philosophy. Let me yeah. let me be very clear on this. But I do find it amazing that human beings are are constantly looking for purpose and meaning, and if they can't get to purpose and meaning, they will settle for drama. And a lack of actual purpose and meaning will invite phony crises. And, and I, I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. In fact, Theodore Dalrymple in his book, Life at the Bottom, really explained this. He goes, you know, there was this liberal belief, this leftist, actually it was a liberal belief, a liberal belief that if we just, if we took away all the concerns, and this is where you see Democrats saying this all the time, like, you have a right to health care and you shouldn't have to choose between this or that, and you have a right to housing. You have, okay, well, then whose job is it to provide it? The government. What Theodore Dalrymple articulates is the moment you take away people's reason and purpose to get up out of bed and get themselves together and go to work and provide for themselves and later on provide for them families. When you take that away, you don't get a bunch of people sitting around writing poetry and and creating beautiful art. You get a bunch of people that are seeking some sort of drama in order to make up for the lack of purpose and meaning in their lives. That's a good way to put it. Because you don't have a right to live off the labor of somebody else. By the I'm just going to say that right now. If you're the sort of person that believes you have a right to all this crap, when that crap has to be produced by other people that are getting out of bed, getting their crap together and working hard, you're a bad person. I'm sorry. You're not some noble person that's fighting for the cause of them. No, you're not. You're trying to help that person exploit somebody else that is working their ass off to try to make their life work for them and their families. And it doesn't make you good. It doesn't make you noble. And it doesn't make you altruistic. It makes you a punk. So be the sort of person that is actually going to stand up and say, you know what? I'm going to take personal responsibility for my life. I'm going to work hard in order to make that happen because I realize there's no such thing as a free lunch. And oh, by the way, when I see somebody in need, I'm going to step in and help them out because I know what it's like to be in that position or because it's just the right thing to do. But I'm sure as hell not going to get up here and say, you know what needs to be done now is we need to elect somebody that's going to steal from that person in order to give to that person so I can feel like a big man. No, you're not. Sorry, don't know why I got off on that. This side is why there's going to be a right wing backlash. Just, just yeah. Ugh. I'm, anyway. I'm, I'm uh, telling you that, 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 honestly, that's why there will be a right wing backlash because the people that are actually producing the stuff eventually are going to have enough of the people that are consuming the stuff, and when they have the ability to push back and seize and 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 reseize power, they they will do so, and. The, like I said, the left has built a, a they, they've they've had a critical flaw. They built a coalition of people who are all dependent. They're, none of these people that the, I mean, the, the left is spending their time validating people with mental illnesses, right? And, and telling them, you must just keep voting for us. It's that way we will give you welfare programs or we will give you government assistance and aid. The left's message is not one of personal responsibility at all. It's one of dependency. And so what happens when the system that is providing that dependency falls apart? That entire dependency system is built around the dollar. When the dollar is gone, what happens? And and I, I, I do think that the left eventually, I told you this story, that like when I got into politics, I thought that the problem was is that the left would keep winning election after election and they would push towards democratic socialism. And when democratic socialism failed to produce the results that it promised, they will abandon the democracy part before they abandon the socialism. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still think that's true, but I think they're going to be beaten to the punch on the whole abandoning democracy thing by the right. And I think the right, the, the good news, hopefully, is that I think when the right abandons democracy, it does not mean replace it with authoritarianism, with Mussolini or whatever. I, I think that hopefully what it will replace it with 
is a revitalization of the Constitution. Now, the question that you got asked, I think, is actually a really pertinent one. The whole, well, we tried this before. If we just roll it back to 17, you know, 80, if we roll it back to 1787, what makes us believe that the result is going to be any different? Well, I, so here's what, here's, what, here's what I would hope. Here's what I would hope, right? There, there was no, the, the concept that we're living under right now with our By system, the way, Green County Agroforestry sent us $5 and said, yes. amen for personal hey, responsibility. Thank, thank you very much. Hey, thank, thank you, you very much too for everyone for, for watching, for commenting, and those that choose to donate it. It, it really, it really does help. Again, we. It's um, very encouraging. Yeah, it is. It is. We really appreciate it. Um, so, so let's go, let's go into that question. Like what happens? We've tried small limited government. Here we are. What? Okay. Well, here we are like over 200 years later and, and. It's not to say that it's been a smooth ride from point A to B. It clearly hasn't, and there's been problems, and there's been injustices, and the whole deal. But but let's go ahead and look at this throughout the entire course of human history. Man, this has been a pretty good run, and it's not over yet. I still think we can save it. And I think we can save it because the principles that were created were good and noble and true. And the problem was is that through, I think, complacency and affluence over time, you know, we, we pretty much forgot that there were certain fundamental principles that applied to life. And you know what? That happens from time to time. The question is, is what happens when there is inevitable, inevitably a crisis that follows? What lessons do you learn from it? We learned a lot of bad lessons from the Great Depression. Interestingly enough, we should have learned lessons from the, from the first, you know, major economic uh, downturn in the early 1920s. Like we completely skipped that time as if it led to the Great Depression. It didn't. We averted a Great Depression once in this country by doing the exact opposite of what all the, you know, the political elites tell us to do today. But we are capable of learning the right lessons. Madison was, Jefferson was, Adams was. We're capable of learning the correct lessons. And the more information that we have and the more evidence that we can present allows us to make better arguments in the future and to hopefully set up more sustainable systems. So I, I think the system that we have is, is worth fighting for. It's worth preserving. And I don't think any of us have a right to look at the long course of history and assume that, well, nope, we just got to make the argument once and that's it. Don't you, got, don't you idiots understand this all works? No, I mean, Reagan was correct, right? The, the, the love and the passion for, for freedom and individual liberty and all of these things is not passed on in the bloodstream. It has to be taught to future generations. It has to be defended. It has to be preserved. And it is a never-ending fight. It, 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 may, it may seem ridiculous that we have to continue to the fight, but we do. So stop complaining about it and figure out the best way to fight it. All right, let's go ahead. We got two more things we got to do and, 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 we gotta, and then we got to wrap up. The first thing I want to do is like, I kind of want to just do a sum up here. I, I, think, I think it's been an interesting discussion. And, we, and, and I think we'll have more in the future of kind of like how this, how this debate kind of uh, rattles out. But here, here's the argument I'm going to make. The problem is not with democratic processes per se, right? Democratic processes, while they are, um, you know, still problematic and still come with their own issues, democratic processes are probably, as far as I can tell, the best way that we can select our representatives within government. And it's the best way to insist that our representatives work together in order to come to various conclusions with respect to what the law will be. The real danger here is not that process. The real danger is people conflating democracy with freedom. The second danger is people conflating political freedom with freedom in general. Real freedom, the most democratic thing you really do every day is not showing up to vote every two, four, six years. The most democratic thing you actually do is the individual decisions that you make with your life. You're a democracy of one. That's what individual liberty means. But it has to be accompanied with personal responsibility. 
It has to be exercised with the understanding that you should have the right to live your life the way you want, provided you don't infringe on the rights of others to do the same. And that the authorities that we give to government should be limited. It should be limited very specifically to those things which government is suited to do, and we need to resist the temptation to allow them to do more. Because the problem that we're in right now is that we have a political, we have political forces which are essentially trying to convince people that the only freedom that really matters is your freedom to elect the people that will then govern you. And that what we really need to do is make sure that we're electing people that will then take the reins of power and control not only those things which have been set up for the government, but to actually control economics in this country. Because let's face it, your ability to choose what you do with your property, your time, your talent, your skills, I would argue that that is far more important to you on a day-to-day basis than who you vote for. And in fact, who you vote for should primarily be about protecting your right to do all of the other things. But we need to both convince people that that is absolutely essential to our society at the same time that we show up to the debate with people that would try to convince us that the real path to freedom is to give a small political elite the power to control the things that are most important in our lives because they promise us that once we give them that power, they will do so to our benefit. Ladies and gentlemen, your political freedom, here's the bottom line, your political freedom doesn't mean a whole lot without your economic and social freedom. And the reason why is very simple. If you're willing to surrender your economic freedom to a political elite that you got to vote for, well, once they control all of those mechanisms, once they control your health care and your education and where you work and the way businesses operate and the sort of car you can drive and the sort of services that you can get in the marketplace, once they control that, what are you voting for anymore? Are you voting for representatives? Are you voting for rulers? In that scenario, are you a citizen or are you a subject? So that's what we need to be fighting for is a broader comprehension, a broader understanding of what genuine freedom actually means. We need to respect the usefulness of democratic processes with respect to those government entities and roles that they play, but we should never surrender to them things that rightfully belong to us. All right. The last thing that we have to discuss. Yeah, because I don't think we're done yet. The last thing that we have to discuss. This is, this is the, the, final, the final thing. You, you are going to get to engage in democracy. Because we've had our first round of voting. And so this is our second round of voting. Should Christian be required, Christian and Hamilton, be required I, I, down for it. to oh. go with me to the gym at least three times a week what? for the next for the next three months. Three months. June, no. July, August. I saw somebody I'm, I'm, totally up the ante and they were like, go to the gym and the first one... The first of you two guys to get married wins. wins. Oh, dang. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to issue a veto until September then. Vote if right you're now. you're going to make me do it that often. I'm, I'm just, I'm, you don't, you guys no understand. Excuses. You don't understand. No, like, no excuses. So you are not more no busy than us. You are busy. Yes. You are not more busy than us. You, you know what needs to be time. done? Let's do it. There's, There's no, no all right, excuses. Vote right now. If you if you throw up a one, if you throw up a one, that means Christian has Christian and Hamilton We're have to go to the gym. Three, times, three a times, times a week. Three times a week on the workout plan I set up for them. Three times a week for the next three months. Vote one if you say yes. Vote I two if two. you say no. <laughs> Christian voted two. All right, so let me see here right now. The audience wins. Here's the good oh, news. Oh man, well somebody did one one one. Somebody somebody committed counts. voter fraud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
here's the good news. Uh, I, see, Nick, this is proof that democracy doesn't work. <laughs> this is... Oh I, my gosh. I just love Dude, that you're getting you, crushed right yeah, now. Yeah, this is a blowout, hey. Christian. Oh my gosh. Christian, I, Dude, I got bad news. You're the only one that voted too. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, 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 wait. It's like, Trumper sweaty guy said, Christian, will make your voice deep and alluring to the ladies. I got one. <laughs> I got one other vote. Oh, no. You got one other vote? Yeah. Oh, Cody. Cody coming in. Is that Cody? Oh, there's, our Cody. there's a third one. Is that Twilight Mist? Who's that? That's not hey, our Cody. The hey, person, too, really want to thank you for the donation. Thank you very much. I Sandring person. Really appreciate that. I said, I so want to have you on in time show to discuss the role of government and how to get to the proper role of government. I think more people need to hear this message. Our country depends on it. Well, hey, thank you very much. And please reach out to us in the in the DMs. Yep. What would be best? Would be us I, I asked him to send me a Okay, great. Uh, yeah, send, send us some information on that. And thank if you very you're wondering where to go to find that chat, it's going to be in the description yep. under the video. We have a, a lot of great things it's going circles. on. It's circles. Yep, Circle's circle. We, oh we post discussions in there about each podcast, events, um, live streams, things of that nature. It's a lot of fun. Dude, I'm telling you right now, you Christian, you've become you're demolished. I'm sorry, man. Man, by the oh my gosh. I'm sorry. How long before Christian just we're able to just turn him into like a beast? It's gonna right. I'm Actually, telling you, it's gonna long. be like in the fall. I've just I I'm I'm telling you, I do not yes, see. Yes, you how. do. You just have to prioritize it. Share share with the audience what you do, Nick, because you yeah, never yeah, answered yeah. that the, question. Give us a well, I mean, I I so I don't I don't I don't consider myself an authority on, on going to the gym. Well, just or whatnot, share what but. you do. You look great. I well, get thank, to stare at you all you, the time baby. across the thank table. You. You're kind of like, you know, maritally obligated to say that. Um, so, I, no, I try to go. I, I, I usually, lately I've been going at least four times a week, sometimes five. If I know I'm going to be able to skip a day, I'll, I'll, do a, I'll do two in one day, one in the morning and one in the evening. I like to go in the morning. I think the morning is the best time to do it. It kicks off your day. You feel good. It's kind of that Jordan Peterson thing of accomplishing something, your first thing out of the gate during the day. Um I, I usually do. I don't do a lot of time at the gym. Maybe like it, maybe an hour, uh, maybe an hour. Um, I need to get better on my hit exercises, which is your, your high intensity cardio, because you really only have to do it like three times a week um, to, to really get your metabolism kicked into the hard drive. But you can't skip leg day for a variety of reasons, even though it's my least favorite. You got to do legs because legs really help release testosterone. All over the body. Um, it helps. It. So you got to figure when you're doing leg day, you're actually helping out the rest. I, I will do, um, it's legs and shoulders um, is one day, arms one day, uh, back and chest another day. Uh, I need to do a better job on, I need, the two things I am faltering on right now, which I'll rely on maybe Hamilton and Christian to push me into, is I got to do better on core. Because I know you like abs, baby, and it's been a while since I it's been a while since I've had the abs that That's you okay, married. I have no room to talk. It's been a while since I've had the abs you married. <laughs> but I was also 152 pounds then. And then um let me see. And then uh the the cardio. The cardio. I don't like here's part of the reason I don't like cardio is so much of the cardio is done through running. I, I yeah. I'll do the rowing machine. I like the rowing machine better. There's other things you can do. I like cardio with sports. I don't like running. I for two running. reasons. For two reasons. Um, one, the Bible says, you know, the, what is it? The sinner runs when no one is chasing. <laughs> so I actually believe it's heretical, uh, to jog. And then, um, two running breeds cowardice. I stand and fight, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, Hey, I'm willing to make a commitment right now. Three times a week. I'll see you at the gym tomorrow morning. Okay. Three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay. And 
I'm looking for Christian to make the same commitment. Well, that's good because tomorrow's donut day it's at that, the Yoder's it, Dutch Delights. <laughs> oh my gosh, Yoder's Dutch Delights. I we have, have really bad news for you. I am not even remotely a morning person. So that so is just completely this out is, of the question. You know, why, you know, part of the reason why you're not a morning person is because you don't force yourself to get up early in the morning. And then because you don't do a great deal of physical, your job doesn't require a great deal of physical activity, right? And so like- yeah, I and would, part of the reason that I'm not a Limburger cheese person is because I don't want to force myself to eat something that smells disgusting. But that's not going to change. Did you the, just equate? Did you just equate <laughs> eating Limburger cheese to engaging in physical no, activity? No, I equated eating Limburger cheese to waking up in the morning when I don't want to wake up in the morning. <laughs> This went in a oh, different man. direction. Yeah, it did. Wow. <laughs> okay, does anybody yeah, in the fine. chat have Look, a solution? For, hold on. A solution no, I, I for somebody solution who doesn't right, like... I, I got a solution, like I got a solution right now for him because he's the one that believes we're going to Mad Max well, in like a decade. Well, you have been authorized to use force by so several when people we go, in the chat. When we go to Mad Max in a decade... Hamilton will be, be my ready. lieutenant. Hamilton will be my lieutenant overseeing my workers. <laughs> you know, you'll get physical activity plowing the fields, <laughs> Christian. You think you're going to be engaging in intellectual? There will be no dissertation. You'll be out there like planting Suddenly, the turnips, and I'll be like, I don't, I don't care about the Austro-Hungarian Navy, Christian. <laughs> Back to your turnips. No, but apparently you do care about absolute monarchies. The, the, the literature from your opponents in future elections are going to be like, Nick Freitas endorsed or returned to surf them <laughs> on his podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, man. So we working, ended in a working out is going to help with the insomnia and it will and oh, Karen, no, it'll Karen help even so said things. it's really going to help you clear your mind for better it studying it really does I, I have insanity gave me the verse Proverbs 21 8 the wicked man runs when no one is chasing him again there which is go. why jogging is heretical I've, I've said this many times alright so well well, viewers I, I, I don't just know gotta what to say this, this was this is a disappointing conclusion Christian it really is I, I'm so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start but shaming this here this is such a great podcast I uh, honestly I probably liked this there podcast there he goes changing the subject yeah. No, 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 no. Oh, I thought th I thought that's what you were referring to. No. I, was like, I like this one as much as we did the right wing backlash one last Thursday. At some point, we definitely need to because th there's a lot that you and I don't uh, d don't agree with on these people on. But I do think that 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 the the dark enlightenment people, their assumption or their their um their analysis of the problem, I think is spot on. They're all over the place with their solutions. I mean, you got some of them that are like, yeah. this is why we need a monarchy. And then others <laughs> are like, this is why we need to have like shareholder style governments. But I do think that their analysis of the problem is very similar to what we talked about with like the whole rise of like Gramsci and the identity-based politics and using the democratic system in order to monopolize power and convince people if they're out of the system, look at how the, the left treats people that by their identity should be in the system, but have chosen not to be in it. Look at how they treat conservative women, conservative, yeah. um, conservative blacks, conservative Hispanics, conservative Asians. Like, like look at how they treat those people. And I, I, I think that that is what's going to lead us to the catastrophe. And Kelly, anything that could be done to, to avert an authoritarian solution to it, I think needs to be explored. You know what you so. would help avert an authoritarian solution? Going to the gym, Christian. <laughs> that would help. The authoritarians aren't coming for you, man, when you can fight back. When they're what? When Christian is sitting there benching 300 pounds, oh, the authoritarians are going right past him to somebody else. They're going past you to somebody that's over at the juice bar at the gym. They're gonna, <laughs> yes, but the they're ladies. Gonna, they're going to authoritarianize them. Abby the, says, Christian, try on other colors besides black and gray. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know what we're going to... Okay, we're going to... This I'm gonna we, get him a pink shirt. We need to next. do. We need to. We need to do this for. I. I that's what. That's what we're gonna do, honey. 
you're going to be responsible for the dressing department for these two guys for setting them up for a lady. I don't know about and, that. And I'm going to be I'm going to be responsible for the gym part. I we're going to get fine. you guys. It's fine. We're you guys. No. I, I think no, getting honey. getting fit and healthy is great. I'm not going to worry about what they're wearing. Why would I worry about what they're wearing? Okay, well, you're wrong. I'll so see anyway. <laughs> Nick, I'll see you at the gym tomorrow morning. All righty. All right, Christian. We're going to see because I, we're going to come back and ask everybody next week over the weekend. There'll be somebody, there'll be some people that went to the gym. Maybe some people that won't want, have gone to the gym. There and were maybe, people in the chat already that are already implementing what was on the last podcast. A, a guy named Daniel uh, says, I, um, I just listened to this morning and began making arrangements I missed it. There's somebody who said in the chat that they've committed to the three-month oh, challenge. Three-month challenge. So that they're they're improving themselves intellectually, spiritually, oh. relationally, physically. Daniel Lyon says, hello, everyone. To the speakers, I've gotten started on the three-month improvement project. There you go. Three. You go. Okay, maybe we should start. I like that better. Maybe we should start a channel in Circle called 90-Day uh, Improvement Project. And everybody can go in, tell us what they're doing. You know, we can get some tips and tricks from everyone. That's great. And share, mean, with, share what they're reading. We've share, got a yeah. ton yeah. of people asking us to start a Discord. What's the difference there? Um, What's so, Discord? So Discord. I don't use Discord. Discord no is idea. a great um, program for managing, you know, massive chats. And it, it does great at its job. Uh, but Circle, we decided to go with it because of just the functionality with live streaming within the community group. Um, future courses, that's something that we've discussed quite a bit. It has a function within it to manage that operation, which is really, really nice. So that's something we want. We've talked a little bit about doing mini courses on a lot of different subjects instead of doing what people typically do with huge courses, uh, breaking them down into like 30-minute to 60-minute uh, courses on very specific things. Um, and so it gave us that functionality. And I think that it, I think it just community-wise provides a, a better group feel um, so yeah, Nick, we'd love to see you in there. No. All right. So oh, there's yeah, Nick's challenge was, right, was, right, there. right there. Get in there. Participate more on circle. All right, everyone. Hey, listen, thank you very much for participating. Thank you very much for your comments. Thank you very much for those of you who donated. We really appreciate it. It actually does help us a lot because obviously putting all this together, um, is not, is not free. But um, we, we do like to offer it as a free service. So we really appreciate when people choose to voluntarily contribute. And again, it is much appreciated. We will see whether or not Christian goes to the gym with Hamilton and I or sits there and makes crappy excuses. Um, and then we'll, then we'll just, that is what will really tell us. Does Christian really think it's all going to crash? Or is he just saying this? Is this his version of the polar bears are going extinct and the icebergs are all going to melt and he doesn't really believe it because he's not preparing for any of it? Or will Christian in 90 days be the warlord we all know he can be? That's right. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you next episode.